Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. <laughs> BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. Like, I've never met Robert Sarver, the owner of the Phoenix Suns, but I saw what he did today and I wasn't surprised by it. It made sense to me that he's looking around going, I can't move forward as the owner of the Phoenix Suns. I'm not going to be able to do business. I'm not going to be able to sell tickets, lock up sponsorships, and attract free agents. Robert Sarver expected the commissioner's one-year suspension would provide him the time to make amends. Basically, he thought the one-year suspension would be enough to kind of make this all go away. As Sarver wrote, quote, In our unforgiving climate, it has become painfully clear that that is no longer possible. That whatever good I have done or good I could still do is outweighed by the things I have said in the past. For those reasons, I am beginning the process of seeking buyers. He will sell the Suns. He will sell the Mercury. NBA Commissioner Adam Silver came out and said he fully supports the decision. He said it was the right next step for the organization and the community. Now, remember, Sarver was suspended one year, and he was fined $10 million last week after the NBA investigation found that he had used the N-word at least five times when recounting the statements of others. I, I Can we just leave it as he used the N-word at least five times? I keep reading the when recounting the statements of others part of that, of that uh, transgression as if that makes it better somehow. That, you know, he used it, but he was only recounting the statements of others. Uh, And by the way, he used it at least five times in documented cases. I mean, come on, you and I sitting around talking about this. How many times do you think Robert Sarver used the N-word if five occasions that were documented could be documented? Let's be real. Um, Sarver was also involved in instances of inequitable conduct towards female employees. He made some inappropriate comments. He commented on employees' appearances. Um, he uh, he tried to lean on what he said were two decades of building organizations in which he brought people together. But the truth is, maybe the climate just changed to the point where what Robert Sarver was probably doing all along suddenly became unacceptable. Sarver selling the Suns. Sarver selling the Mercury. I couldn't help but think uh, about the NBA as a whole. The NBA Players Association, the league's players, incredibly powerful, uh, incredibly influential. LeBron James tweeted out in response to this, quote, I am so proud to be part of a league committed to progress. But the truth is the players drove this. And the NBA Players Association president, C.J. McCollum, uh, you know, added that he thanks Mr. Sarver for making a swift decision that was in the best interest of our sports community. The... uh, The sponsors around the Phoenix Suns, like PayPal, were threatening not to renew their partnerships. Fans were saying we're not going to show up. 
I have a, uh, a difficult time believing that the Phoenix Suns were going to be able to attract free agents. So this was the right thing to do and is the right thing to do. And I wish the league would have done it and not left it to the Players Association to push Robert Sarver out. Feels like one of these things where Adam Silver and the league could have handled this better and did not. It makes me also think about the Trailblazers. Not because the Trailblazers have an owner who has used the N-word. Not because the Trailblazers have an owner that has been inappropriate. Uh, Certainly Jody Allen has some legal filings in her past where she has been accused of inappropriate behavior, comments, actions by employees. But it really makes me think about this organization because, look, Robert Sarver didn't want to give up control of the Phoenix Suns, and we know why. When you own one of 30 or one of 32 or one of 25 or one of one and you are a billionaire or multimillionaire, um, you do get sucked into the vortex or maybe into the, uh, you get intoxicated with the idea that you're in control, you're special, you have something somebody else doesn't. Um, and I think Robert Sarver probably acted that way. Uh, but I wonder if the Trailblazers organization knows what the right thing to do is. You know what I mean by that? Like Jody Allen, you know, as the trustee of the organization, Burt Cold as the vice chair of Trailblazers Inc., they must know down deep that holding on to the Blazers organization isn't good for business either. You've got season ticket holders who won't renew. You have sponsors who are like, eh, why do this? Like, you know, where's this season going? You have players, free agent players, who have largely turned their backs for years on the Trailblazers in this market and said, you know what, I'm going to go other places and win. And the Blazers have only been able to bring the talent that they've brought to Portland because they either draft it or, frankly, they traded for it. Or they took players that weren't valued in other places and paid too much for it. So I keep thinking about the right thing to do. Like Robert Sarver, he needed some help. Like the Players Association gave him some help in finding the right thing to do. I think selling the team is the right thing to do. And I think he ends up... uh, saving the organization and, and saving himself a lot of embarrassment in a prolonged, uh, you know, uh, dire situation by getting out now. I think he'll get market value for the Suns. I don't think it'll be uh, like the case of Donald Sterling where it was forced upon him. But I think Robert Sarver will get out of the league, and I think the Suns will move on, and the NBA will be better for it. I think the Blazers need a similar change of leadership and ownership and management. I think the Blazers need Jody Allen out of the picture. They need Burt Cold gone and make him a memory. They need to get him away from the organization and, and allow the, uh, the Trailblazers franchise to be owned by somebody who would come in and buy it and love it up and have ambition and have new vision for the organization and hire their own people and really just sort of, you know, wipe away or, or you know, push away all of the bad feelings that have accumulated inside the organization for so many years and, you know, and really just spin Trailblazers, Inc. into a positive, uh, into a positive direction. I don't know the feeling you have when you say Trailblazers. I don't know if your heart lifts. I don't know if you get hopeful and inspired or if you kind of shake your head and grumble and your heart drops and you go, oh, it could, this could be so much more fun in the right hands. But I really do feel like it is one of the biggest sins in our sports market in the Pacific Northwest 
the fact that the Trailblazers are sitting here as an untapped asset, just sort of spinning in a circle. And I can't think of a better icon for the organization than the pinwheel logo that the Blazers use. It's just a pinwheel. It's just sort of rotating in the wind and waiting for something or someone to change the course uh, of the of trajectory for this franchise. Like, I, I saw what Robert Sarver did. It took him, uh, you know, an investigation, a fine, a suspension, a whole bunch of players belly aching about the league not doing enough, and finally Adam Silver saying, there's nothing more I can do but sponsors like PayPal who are threatening to not renew their partnership. Uh, you know, they're the Jersey Patch sponsor of the Suns. Uh, it was, it was, you know... Uh, the other stakeholders in the Suns ownership team saying Sarver needs to get out, like they knew that it was a losing proposition to have him associated with the organization. You just it wasn't it wasn't fixable. You couldn't salvage it. And the Blazers are in largely the same place. Like Jody Allen hasn't been the subject of an investigation herself, but the organization was the toxic workplace environment and you know they blame that all on neil o'shea but let's be real who is it that hired neil o'shea who is it that let him run wild after the death of paul allen who is it that extended his contract hell it was jody allen if it was a toxic work environment neil o'shea was at the heart of it uh maybe the owner herself or the acting owner should have been held more responsible 503-417-7575 is the number. I want you to tell me when I say Trailblazers, Inc., or you see a Blazers logo, do you get hopeful? Do you get inspired? Do you think about the basketball season? Or does your heart sink and you think, gosh, this is an organization that should be in the hands of Phil Knight or somebody else that would love it up and pour some money and resources and new energy into it because we're about to have a season that's going to start. Media Day is going to happen. The Blazers are going to go off to Santa Barbara and get ready for the season. But I, I'm looking at the Phoenix Suns today, and I'm going, you know what? Robert Sarver, he uh, is, you know, a, a guy that I probably wouldn't want to hang out with. You wouldn't want him to own your team. Uh, you certainly wouldn't want to uh, be associated with him from a business standpoint or a social standpoint. But he knew the right thing to do. It was obvious, but he knew the right thing to do. Why don't the Blazers know the right thing to do? 503-417-7575. Steven, help me out here, man. Phoenix Suns, they're going to end up in new ownership. Sarver's going to be gone. It's the right thing to do. What's the right thing for the Blazers? Yeah, I mean, for the Blazers to be successful, the right thing is to get new ownership in there. And, you know, it starts from the top, especially in basketball. When you have bad leadership at the top, it's tough to be successful in any sort of way. So for the Suns, you know, I think it's great for them that Robert Sarver is stepping away. And he even mentioned... You know, he it's not that he wanted to go away, but he knew that what was out there was not going to be able to fix itself and it was going to hurt the team. And so he is biting one, biting or take one for the team and he is selling it, which is great. And I think if you're the Blazers, you have to hope that somehow Jody and Burt realize, you know what, it's better if we step away and let this franchise, uh, you know, hopefully bloom at some point because it's just the same old, same old thing here in Portland and it's never going to change until there's new leadership. Yeah, I think if you're a Blazer fan, my hunch would be that your heart drops. You think about the season and you go, man, uh, you know, how how much better could this be? Roy's in Portland. Roy, go ahead. You know, John, man, um, I was thinking about this with this Sarver and everything that he's been doing and the things. If the NBA truly cared, how, how can they um, 
I would like for them to mandate an African-American owner to be the next owner of an NBA franchise. Uh, you only got one African-American owner, that's Michael Jordan. If you care so much about African-Americans and what Sarver was doing and all the stuff he's doing, why don't you make a concerted effort to make an a African-American group the, own, the next owners of an NBA franchise? And I'll say the same thing about I don't want Phil Knight to be the owner of it. To me, I mean, that's too – I mean, listen, I don't think Nike, somebody that owns Nike should have anything to do with a franchise. I just That's just me personally. Uh, uh, NBA, NFL, anything. That's just too much – it's too, you, you're too involved. I mean, I like Phil Knight. He's a great guy, whatever. But, uh, you know, it's other owners out there. Yeah. And I would like some minority owners, African-American, Hispanic owners. I'm sick. I'm tired of the Good Old Boys Network, you know, and Phil, and Phil Knight is part of the Good Old Boys Network. I mean, yeah. there's other people out here that can own a team besides the same players. And I, we need to break up. If you don't want a Sarver and people like that, let's just stop. Let's break up the Good Old Boys Network. And let minorities own some of these. And I mean, what's the percentage of African Americans at an NBA? And you only got one owner. Same thing with the NFL, man. Well, yeah. Let's look at all of look at all of professional sports. I mean, you could argue there's probably only about five or six people of color that are in those kinds of ownership positions. Uh, Jordan with the with the Hornets is at the top of the list. The Jaguars owner is Pakistani born. Um, The Sacramento Kings owner is um indian uh uh you have with the bills um you have kim uh, pegula with the bills and the buffalo sabers Artie moreno with the with the angels i think lazary with the with the uh, milwaukee bucks um it you know is he's the chairman of the bucks but still he's he's there i do think you have some cases, but Roy's right. I mean, in, in a lot of cases in the NBA, I think Adam Silver does steer part of this discussion. And, you know, I think Adam Silver would love uh, a minority owner or a uh, a female owner to come into the league. Um, I know that, you know, Jody Allen doesn't count because she's a trustee. But I think, you know, we've talked about this. We've talked about, like, who could own the Trailblazers. Uh, on, on the Phil Knight front, he is no longer involved in the day-to-day at Nike. So, you know, he has recused himself from that management or that executive board team. And so I do think it would be a legacy play by night in owning the team. And I do think that the Dodgers co-owner, Alan Smolinski, would be sort of the controlling, more active day-to-day owner if that partnership was allowed to buy the Blazers. A good story that has developed in the last few months, the Seattle Mariners. Ryan Divish of the Seattle Times covers the Mariners. He's up next. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I've been getting a lot of uh, a lot of noise in my email inbox from listeners who want me to talk more about the Mariners. Mariners have been fun. It's September. They're in a race for the playoffs. Ryan Divish of the Seattle Times covers them better than anybody. You better be reading Divish if you're complaining to me about not talking enough Mariners. We're bringing him on. Divish is in Oakland with the team. What's going on, man? Uh, not much. Just, you know, living the dream uh, outside the mausoleum that is the Oakland Coliseum. You know, it's like, I mean, I feel like, uh, like one of those Indiana Jones going into the Temple of Doom. <laughs> just rotted old decaying place, waiting for it to fall in. 
big boulder to chase me down, a bunch of snakes everywhere. <laughs> I love it. The Are they drawing at all at this point, or is it just is it like you can count the fans from the press box? So they said there was 4,000 last night, but there was le- probably less than two. And I would venture to guess half of them were Mariners fans from the Bay Area. And then what they're doing, too, is like they run the, the, the playbook that the, the Sonics group under Clay Bennett did in Seattle. Yeah. Like they do nothing for the fans. They go out of their way to make things difficult for the fans. They raised season ticket prices last year knowing they were going to do this. They don't. Like, here's a perfect example. The, the Uber pickup lot for this stadium where there's nobody at is underneath an underpass over by the BART station. And that's not a place you want to be at midnight. Oh, I've been over and there. So yeah. why, did, why do they do that? Because they don't want people coming. I mean, they really don't. They want to be able to show baseball and people in the Bay Area that if they do leave, look, here's what, here's what happened, here's why we're leaving. But they go out of their way, one, to not provide a very good product, but then, two, like any of the amenities that might make a fan you know, say, well, you know what, it's still baseball. I still want to go watch my team. They make it difficult, and that's that's a frustrating thing for everybody involved. Ryan Divish, Seattle Times with us. Um, Mariners did the unthinkable. They lost to the A's. Now you are sitting at a, this is a team, I think it's four and six in their last ten, but they're not in a bad position. Fifteen games to go, magic numbers sitting around ten, depending on how you measure it. Is is this team going to make the playoffs, Divish, or, you know, what, what's happening here? Yeah, I'm not good at math, and I don't know that any journalist has ever been great at math. But with 15 games left, they, you know, if they went 5-10 and 10 the rest of the way, the, the Orioles would still have to win 10-5 and five to even have a chance. I mean, like, and, like, the Orioles are listed as five games back because there's no tiebreaker this year, and the Mariners own the tie. You know, there's no tiebreaking game, and the Mariners won the season series. They're technically six games back. Mm. So I mean, it would take it would take a colossal collapse. Um, and let's not kid ourselves. Mariners' history says they're more than capable of that. But this team is good enough. The starting pitching is good enough. So they're they're not going to lose eight in a row or seven in a row. They're going to lose. You know, they haven't played well lately, and they're really dinged up in their lineup. But they're not. That, that just would be. It would be monumental collapse. Hell, I'd have a lot of fun writing about it. But, like, I just don't see it happening. I, I don't – everything i kind of seen about baseball and seen from this team says that that won't happen. Um, but that doesn't stop Mariners fans from panicking uh, because they've been – they've been kind of – they have permanent PTSD from what this team has done to them for the last 20-some years. I'm trying to weigh, like, you know, you want to reach the postseason playing your best baseball, but – this is a lineup that has some guys in it that probably need some rest. How are the Mariners sort of approaching that, or is that what is happening right now? You know, they, they didn't as much on the previous homestand. Um, they had a lot of off days, so they're using those as days to rest, so they're playing kind of their main lineup. But then you just kind of saw some dings and dents, and guys are banged up. You know, somebody like Julio Rodriguez has never played this many games in his life in this deep into the fall in one season, you know, gets a sore back. and. And, you know, they, they're trying to rest them. They have the expanded rosters. They just made some roster moves today to kind of offset that. But, yeah, they're trying to steal a game here, get a DH day there, and, and try and avoid it. But it's like the fluke things. Like, Eugenio Suarez has been one of their best hitters in the last – since August 1st. He's going to make a routine play on a ground ball. It takes a bad hop, hits him right in the finger, and it breaks his finger. Like, you can't prevent that, you know. You can't hide from that. It's just funny how it is. It's like – 
same thing like in football or basketball. A non-contact knee injury is going to happen at some point. You can't avoid it. You know, that's just the way it is, and it's not anybody's fault. And so they're trying to protect some guys, but, yeah, you're right. they got to play better than they have because it has been pretty stinky lately. Robbie Ray scheduled starter today, George Kirby tomorrow for the Mariners. You mentioned the pitching. What do they need out of these guys at this point of the season? And you, you, you would like to see those guys, that rotation, get a little bit of rest. Will they be able to do that if, if they don't play better in the next five or six games? No, I don't think they will, and that's the point. Yeah, you'd like to see maybe the last day of the season you're doing a bullpen start or you call up a guy from AAA and have him start the last day of the season and rest your guys. But, you know, there is, you know, with each day it's more difficult, but there is a chance that they could, you know, win that first wild card spot and get three home games at T-Mobile Park, and that it matters to them. It really does matter. They want that. They feel like they have an advantage at home. They feel like their fans have earned that. But maybe they do do that. I, I, I tweeted out, like, a what with the way their current rotation is set up, Luis Castillo would start the uh, first day, the first wild card game. But, like, they could manipulate it with the off day on Monday to where he would start the last day of the season if that meant, like, you know, if you win this, you're going to host. Because um, I think the big, one of the Mariners' biggest series is, like, you know, they get into this wild card wild card series they end the drought from 21 years but they don't get a home game what happens if you lose that series you know does it even feel like you made the playoffs because you don't have a game at home the reward for your fans isn't there um and, and they believe that that home field matters to them so i don't know i, I do know i talked with jerry depote about it a little bit you know and they're going to try and get that number one seed within reason and maybe they manipulate it, maybe they don't. But I think he also feels comfortable that their first four starters, whoever lands on that day, gives them a good chance to win that final game, and, and that will matter, you know, that they aren't going to have to. It's not like in past years where you've seen some teams where they just have two horses and you try and manipulate everything you can so those guys are pitching the most meaningful games at all times. The Mariners are really comfortable with their first four guys. But at the same time, you went out and traded four guys for Luis Castillo, and the idea of not having him pitch in a wild card series, you know, that, that doesn't seem great either. Ryan Divish, Seattle Times with us. Give me an idea from you know, your standpoint. You've covered this franchise for a while and you are now on the cusp of breaking your streak. Like you Ryan Divish could get into the postseason. Uh, has it been more fun? Has it been more work? Has it been different? What's it been like? Yeah, it's been interesting to say the least. Uh, I think last year you know, they've been close late in the season to the point where, you know, you, you know, I'm sure you got Marriott status up the wazoo. You, you, you book the hotels out early because you, yeah. you prepare for it. So I've got hotels in Cleveland, Minnesota, Tampa, you know, every possibility. Um, and we did that last year even. But this year is different because, like, we're expecting it. Like, we, you know, me and Larry Stone and Adam Jude, who's helping me out now, they moved Mossiak to help me out, which is great. Uh, he's pretty good at base, writing baseball. And then even Bob Condota, our resident, resident historian, we just we went to a bar one night after the game. We started BSing about what we thought we needed to write about come the postseason. And, you know, he started writing it down on a bar napkin, and I grabbed a notebook, and all of a sudden we had, you know, 20 stories, five for our uh, special section preview when they get in and everything like that. So that's it's certainly different. Uh, fans are, are really intense about this. Like, I was joking that Mariners fans are fatalists 
when they're losing, you know, the losing seasons and somewhat entertaining, but now they're just on edge right now these last few weeks. And uh, one of the guys was like, yeah, they're worse when they win than when they lose. And I said, well, that's the losing's a learned behavior, you know. So, uh, but, I mean, like, that's the thing. It, it really grips the city. Like, you know, it's every day. You know, you, you get up, and they want to know every little detail, and you got to remind them, hey, like, we don't get media availability until, like, 3 in the afternoon. So it, it is cool for our paper and for the people in Seattle. Like, you know, I'm not a fan. It doesn't matter to me, like. I would joke once, at least I knew what I could do in October. I could always schedule October out because they never made it. Um, but but at the same time, I have a lot of friends that are diehard Mariners fans that have lived and died with this team. You know, I have friends in the organization that, that really care, and they're not part of the decisions that have made them inept, but they really care about this product and, you know, and they have a lot of pride in it. So to see how excited they are about the possibility is really cool, and I mean, it really has come at a good time in Seattle with the Seahawks being bad. That this Mariners team has kind of filled that void. I, I think about you know Blazer fans a little bit because they you know they've gone through some some tough times, but you know Mariners' streak of you know not getting to the postseason or maybe you know just kind of playing games and not feeling like they had a chance. Like I really feel for the fan base. Is there a player or two on the roster that you would be happy for? I know it's a weird question for a journalist, but is there a guy that you go, you know, for this guy to get a taste of the postseason? Yeah, um, and like really this year going into it, I'm I'm crushed for for Felix Hernandez and Kyle Seager. You know, they got paid a lot of money by the organization, but the organization never really did much to help them win. They didn't commit. Maybe the past ownership group never really committed the way they should have. Um, and so I feel pain for them because they, you know, their careers are done. They never played in the postseason. I'm very happy for Mitch Hanniger, a guy who's been here since the longest tenured guy, which is funny. It's 2017. Him and Marco Gonzalez are the longest tenured guys. But you know, those are guys that have been through. You know, they were asked to be leaders when they brought up all these kids and and be leaders and teach them how to be big leaguers and all this stuff. And I'm happy for them, probably the most. Um, you know, it's, like I said, it's a sports staff and stuff, but, like, yeah, those two especially, because they've owned it. Like, for a while there, Jerry DePoto and Scott Service, they didn't want to talk about the streak, and they, you know, well, we didn't, this isn't our fault, you know, or we inherited it, but this isn't on us. Whereas, like, Mitch Hanniger and Marco Gonzalez, you know, on our season preview, so you put on the jersey, it's yours. You own it. You figure out a way to break it, you know, and, and these guys were never afraid to talk about it and never afraid to say that was their goal. Where like ownership always talks about these, you know, ten thousand foot goals that you're looking at. Oh, well, it's just about improvement. You know, fans don't care about improvement; they care about tangible results. And yeah, I think the players understood it more than the the, the ownership did. And I kind of feel like, to that point, Ryan, tell me if I'm crazy, but wouldn't it be important for the Mariners to, you know, win three in a row here to try to take some pressure off? You know, because what I fear is, you know, five games to go. They have to win three. That becomes, uh, you know, 20 years of pressure instead of just five games. No, you're right, and that happened last year. You know, they, they had the kind of the miracle run to put themselves in it. They go to Homestown, they got basically win them all. And <laughs> I think they lost the first one or they lost the second one, and then it puts even weirder pressure. So, no, they need to just play better. I mean, like, that's a thing. And, and you try and tell people, um, and, John, you play baseball, you know this, but, like, one play, one pitcher, one at bat can change a game. 
It doesn't matter if the other guys are, you know, it doesn't matter what the records are. Up here, everybody's good, you know. Everybody here is the best player they've ever played with before in their lives, you know, growing up. So uh, one player, one pitcher, one something can change the outcome of a game. That's why they have that whole mantra of every team wins 60 and every team loses 60 and then the other 42 decide it. Well, you know, maybe last night's loss is the other 60, the loss is 60, but you hope it's not one of the 42 that decides your fate. So that's kind of what I look at is like, yeah, they just have to play better. If they play up to their capabilities, they're fine. They're they're a good team. They don't, you know, they're not they're not world beaters in terms of offense, but they pitch, they play defense, and those are consistencies that they have to have. Last night the pitching let them down, and that was a problem. Ryan Divish, Seattle Times. Hey, thank you for joining us. Have a crown royal on us. And uh, oh, yeah. make sh- make sure that you are hydrated and rested for uh, what should be a fun fun uh, final fifteen in the postseason for you. Yeah, let me know anytime, guys. All right, Ryan. Thank you, man. There's Ryan Divish, friend of this show, Seattle Times. He's a great follow on Twitter. Read him in the Seattle Times. Mariners, make it a run. Uh, if you're a Mariner fan out there, you remember 2001. This is not that team. This is not a you know a hundred plus win team. This is a team trying to get to ninety and get into the postseason and be a wild card and host a game. Uh, interesting run. They got the Mariners A's tonight. Six forty first pitch tomorrow. Twelve thirty five is the first pitch in Oakland, and it doesn't uh, stop. They'll go right to Kansas City, and they won't get an off day until Monday between uh, the Royals and the Rangers series. But the Mariners trying to lock this up, and and the good thing, the fortunate thing for them is, you know, of their fifteen, five of those come against the A's. But the problem is the A's beat them yesterday, four to one. Not a uh, not a great performance. I want you to leave it here. You got the BFT. Back to the bald faced truth with John Canzano on seven fifty. The game. Man, I heard that commercial for Rayflex in the last uh, in the last uh, commercial break, and I got to be honest with you. Um, I, I was talking to Stephen before the show. You played basketball, right, Stephen? That was your game. I did. Yeah. You had a. You had now no knee issues for you. No. Any kind of physical ailments from playing sports, overuse, anything like that? Uh, yeah, I hurt my hip really bad when I was younger, um, and then my ankle and my left ankle, uh, it's degenerative, so it's bone-on-bone uh, bone just rubbing together, so that's uh, never a good sign. Okay, so you know that pain, yes. and I had that in the knees, and I, I had always, I was that kid growing up, like, you know, we talked today about overuse injuries and everything, and, you know, even our our uh, our kids' primary care physician uh, the pediatrician, that's the word I was looking for, uh, said, you know, there's, he's seeing in, you know, overuse injuries in, in kids. And I was that kid growing up. Like, I played everything all the time. I talk about junior high. I played 11 sports in junior high. Play, they offered 11 sports at my school. I played every sport. I wrestled. I ran track. I did cross country. I did baseball. I did basketball. I, if, they, if they offered it, I was there. And I look back and I realize, like when I got to college and I was playing baseball in college, my knees bothered me. Like they, there was, there was always kind of some swelling in the joint. And so I always thought like 
maybe this is this is just normal because I had gotten used to it. And it really wasn't that painful when I was in my early 20s. But later, I realized I would pay a tax. And uh, I ended up with three knee surgeries. I ruptured both patellar tendons. I, you know, the last one came uh, when the first one came when I was playing basketball, ruptured the tendon. A uh, bunch of kids made Greg Oden jokes while I was laying there waiting for the uh, ambulance to come take me. When you rupture a tendon like that, you cannot get up. My kneecap was like mid-thigh. It was pretty devastating. Uh, then I healed from that surgery. I go and I rupture the other tendon. Then I had a microfracture surgery. And people who have been long-time listeners of the show know I was pretty much a mess. Like I was gritting through it. I could run, but it was painful. I'd be sitting on the couch watching TV or whatever, and I'd be in pain. I was like, gosh, this is going to suck when I'm like 80 or 90 if I get there. Like, it, it's just kind of this is the new normal. And then my kid, my oldest daughter, was playing volleyball. And her volleyball coach is a former Portland State volleyball player, Tressa. And her volleyball coach is married to a hockey player. And they were at practice and there was no parents around and I said hey I'll shag balls or whatever and so I was running over there and I was shagging balls and I was really hobbling but I was used to it and I didn't know what it looked like and I looked up and Tressa was looking at me like jaw dropped like are you really in that much pain like jogging after a volleyball and it was because you know I was on a hard gym surface I'm trying to jog after a volleyball and I was like you I was like bone on bone cartilage gone Plus, uh, the, with three knee surgeries, once you have a surgery, you, people know this, that you know you, the physical therapy afterward is really important because if you don't recover right, like you lose some muscle tone or maybe you're compensating, it just puts a tremendous amount of pressure on the joint. So I was hobbling around, and she, she says, hey, you need to come into my work. And I was like, wait, what are you talking about, come into your work? Like, this is just, I've had surgeries. Like, she goes, no, 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 I work at Reflex. And that's how I met Reflex, for people who have heard about it on the show over the years. Tressa brought me in. She was just the office manager at Reflex, and she said, come get an appointment. We're doing some cool stuff. And they did PRP on both knees, platelet-rich plasma therapy, game changer. Like, felt better and got better. And then they said, okay, you want to, uh, you want to try some stem cell treatment? And I was like, tell me about stem cell treatment. And they literally take um, your own stem cells, and what Dr. Riggs and the team at Reflex do is they mix it with the PRP, they uh, put it in a centrifuge, and they rotate it, and they separate all the platelet-rich plasma from the platelet-poor plasma, and then they put your stem cells in it, and then they inject it back into your into your joint. And he uses imaging to do it, and you're literally watching it happen. It's amazing. And and I got to be honest, like, I was skeptical at first. I was like, stem cell, you know, I've heard all of this. What is it? You know, is it? I've heard NBA players get it or NFL players get it. Didn't know it was available to regular people. Um, and I felt about two months later, I felt a lot better. And then three months later, I was even better. And then it got better and better and better. And it got to the point where um, there was one day I was in the parking lot of our church and I, I'll never forget this. I was holding, I think it was our youngest daughter or middle daughter. She was still a toddler. And I was holding her. And we all know this feeling as a parent. And I wanted to kind of, it started to rain. And I wanted to kind of hustle across the parking lot. And I remember thinking, this is going to hurt as I went to step off the curb to kind of break into a, a, a parent jog, like a slow jog while you're holding your kid. And 
I took the first step and expected it to hurt, and it didn't. And I took another step and another step. And then later, Anna said to me, she said, you know what? You haven't complained about your knees. And I was like, they don't hurt anymore. And it was then, like, I realized, I told Dr. Riggs, I literally sent him an email. And I was like, hey, I feel great. Like, I, I don't know what you did, but I, like, you, it was a game changer. It was the stem cell treatment. It was the PRP. It was all that advanced cellular therapy. So I'm, I'm, as a public service, if you, are, if you have knee pain, if you have joint pain, and you're like, this is debilitating, or this really sucks, or this is getting worse, if you, are, if you haven't already had a surgery, I wish somebody would have got to me in my 20s and said, hey, there are some treatments available to reduce the inflammation in the joint, whatever, because I don't think I would have ruptured the, the, the tendons had I got that therapy. And I certainly would have liked to have that instead of a surgery. But if, if you've had a surgery, like I did, I had three, I was in pain, and I just thought, this is how it's going to be. I'm here to tell you, it doesn't have to be that way. So uh, here's the easy solution because people are going to blow me up. Go to reflexknees.com. That's the website, reflexknees.com. And Dr. Riggs will take care of you. Tell him I sent, sent you in. He does a fantastic job. He's got a great team there. But if it were not for that volleyball coach, I would still be hobbling around. And now I can run. I'm pain-free. I'm good. We could play some three-on-three basketball or whatnot. I want you to leave it here. Coming up, I want to talk about the crying shame that is going on this weekend in our state. Yeah, there's a crying shame that is happening. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. You know what a crying shame is? We all do, right? I think it's a crying shame that USC coming to Racer Stadium on Saturday night for maybe the last time ever. I wrote about it today at johnconzano.com if you want to go into a deeper dive on it. But let's just talk about some of the things that have happened over the years when USC has showed up in Corvallis. By the way, I, I was interested in, it, it felt to me like Oregon State has played USC tough at home in the last decade or so. Turns out it goes back a couple decades. In the last seven meetings... Um, Oregon State has four wins. They're four and three in the last seven in Corvallis. They'll get another opportunity on Saturday night, and probably the final opportunity. But 1967, you may remember the Giant Killers. You've heard about that. Uh, but I found out something about that game that I did not know this morning. Uh, Alpenrose Dairy handed out 25,000 pints of orange juice to commemorate O.J. Simpson's visit to Corvallis in 1967. We all know that Oregon State won the game. They got the name the Giant Killers. They also beat Purdue that season. But Steve Priest at quarterback, Bill Enyard at running back, Jerry Belcher uh, in the backfield as well. Um, but apparently they, they handed out 25,000 pints of orange juice because O.J. was in town. And the students at Oregon State chucked it all around the stadium. So like the entire student section and probably a lot of the other fans ended up sticky and soaking wet with orange juice by the end of that game, 1967. Um, 2000, Jonathan Smith, who's on this show today, he'll be with us at 5 o'clock, Oregon State coach. Jonathan Smith was at quarterback for Oregon State. Beavers beat USC 31-21 in that game in 2000. Jonathan Smith left the field with the game ball. 
He was walking up the stadium ramp alongside Hal Cowan, the longtime Oregon State Sports Information Director. Now, Hal, I'm friends with Hal. I get along with Hal. Not everybody did over the years. Hal could be a little bit crusty, okay? And, but I, Hal's got a good heart. And Jonathan Smith recognized it. He turned to his SID on the ramp after the game, handed Hal Cowan the football and said, you deserve this more than I do. Hal Cowan took the ball home after the game. And you'd think the story ended there, but it didn't. Because 17 years later, we all know in 2017, Jonathan Smith was hired as Oregon State's head coach. Hal Cowan told me this morning he brought the football to the introductory news conference, presented it to Smith, and had him sign it. Full circle moment. Started at the USC game, ended when Jonathan Smith became coach. Uh, Oregon State also won the game in 2006. You know, uh, Mike Parker, the voice of Oregon State Athletics, very passionate guy, and a, uh, a guy who is known to um, be demonstrative. That's the best way to put it. He's known to be demonstrative, outgoing. He loves to call a great moment, and he often calls it with a little bit extra. Coletto awaiting the shotgun snap. The Beavers try to win it. Coletto runs to the right. Coletto in! Touchdown, Beavers! And the Beavers defeat Fresno State! Jack Coletto, the hammer scores! The Beavers win it for the first time ever in this stadium. The Beavers win it! Mike Parker, so you know what I'm talking about, in 2006 was calling the radio broadcast of an Oregon State win over USC. That game ended 33-31 in 06. He was calling the end of that game, shouting and going nuts. The radio booth, it's no longer there because it's been blown up uh, by Oregon State, but the radio booth at Reeser Stadium has a glass partition that is between one booth and the visiting radio and the home radio. So the crews can see each other. Apparently, Paul McDonald former quarterback at USC, was part of the broadcast crew for USC that day. Mike Parker calling the Oregon State win, going bananas at the end of the game. He's doing his thing. McDonald's working for USC. He looks over at Parker while Parker's going nuts and flips him off, gives him the middle finger. A little bit of gamesmanship going on. Now, Oregon State also won the game in 2008. We know that as the Jaquish Rogers game. He ran for 186, in, uh, and uh, Pete Carroll and USC didn't know what hit him. But uh, there's been some history is what I'm saying. And it's really sad to me. Like, we could talk all we want about USC, UCLA, needing to do what was best for them and going to the Big Ten. That's fine. We can have that debate. We can have that conversation. But I am a purist, and I love tradition. And I love nostalgia. And maybe that's part of why I'm in the business I'm in. But it really breaks my heart that USC and UCLA are leaving the Pac-12 conference. I think it's wrong. I think it's bad for the Rose Bowl. I think it's bad for geography. I think it's bad for college athletics. The instability is bad. Uh, And the fact that USC, who has so much tradition in this conference... Uh, the fact that USC may never come back to Corvallis is a crying shame. It, for that reason, I hope Oregon State punches them in the nose. I think the whole Pac-12, everybody outside of USC territory probably hopes 
that Oregon State punches USC in the nose. Steven and Sean, this is a cry and shame. I hope they punch him in the nose, too. I think that would be awesome. Um, I'm afraid that it's not going to happen, but it would be great. And it is, it's a shame because these are the type of matchups that, you know, USC, you know, the big glamour program, they don't want to go to Corvallis. They don't want to face Oregon State like this, uh, especially Oregon State's role. And it's always one of those trap games for them. They've had so much trouble here uh, with, you know, last few years, like you said, over time, really. Uh, and all this Jaquiz Rogers Stories are popping up on my timeline today. Just a lot of people reminding them, USC fans, of what happened. And I'm with you. I, ho- I hope it happens. Um, it should be an exciting game, but it would be great uh, if Oregon State get the win because it's kind of sad that USC is going to go away. What's spread on this game? Go ahead, Sean. Six and a half. Six and a half. Yeah. Uh, you know, USC-Oregon State, it's just one of many matchups that we're losing uh, because of conference realignment, whether it's a rivalry or not. You know, just so much history that we're losing. I don't know if you saw it. But uh, yesterday it was announced that Oklahoma and Oklahoma State, the Bedlam game that's produced so many, so many great matchups and that rivalry. It's you know that one's not going to take place. And we saw Week One, you know Pitt and West Virginia, those two teams. They don't really play each other anymore. They played in kind of a one-off deal this year, and that was a really fun game. So I'm totally with you. It's it's definitely going to be it's going to be a great game to watch on Saturday. But there's a lot of history that you know it's the it's the last time that this is going to happen in Corvallis, and we're losing that around the nation in college football. I think you're getting a lot of administrators, coaches, personalities in the game that maybe don't have the connection that others had. I think it's it's a cry and shame that Oklahoma and Oklahoma State won't be playing. They couldn't agree. Uh, The prevailing thought is that Oklahoma didn't want to do a home-and-home. They wanted Oklahoma State to have to play on the road. And Oklahoma State, I mean, it's just sad. I mean, it is a loss to college athletics. When you lose matchups, when you lose tradition, when you lose your geography, I know – you know, David Shaw, the Stanford coach, told me at Pac-12 Media Day that he thought geography was like a force of Mother Nature. It, you know, it'll win over. I just don't know if I have the patience to stay with it. And I think there are some college football fans that are turned off by the fact that we're watching all of this loss of tradition, the loss, the death of the game, so to speak. So Oregon State, USC, Saturday night could be the last time that that happens in Corvallis. I want you to leave it here. Coming up, Punch It Audio. BFFT From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. I'm going to leave you with a question. Yeah, you. You're out there, you're on the treadmill, you're driving your car, you're going for a walk, you're listening for the podcast, you're at work in your cubicle pretending to work. I don't know what you're doing right now. Picking up the kids, going to a sports event, are you sitting in the parking lot at a soccer practice? I don't know. But I'm going to leave you with a question I want your answer to. We're talking about college football playoff expansion. They talked about it for a while. Going from four teams to 12. The fear was that it would cause the regular season to be less important when you broaden the playoff. But I don't, I kind of think that the regular season would be more important. George Klyovkov, the Pac 12 commissioner, said that the other day when John Wilner and me were interviewing him for the podcast, the Gonzano and Wilner podcast. He made a comment where he said, they felt like the regular season games would be more valuable to media partners because more teams 
would be in the playoff mix, meaning if you have 12 playoff berths instead of four, you have more teams in more conferences who in week eight, week nine, week 10, week 11, week 12 are playing meaningful games, meaning more people tune in because, hey, these are a precursor to the playoff games. Is the regular season more or less important, more or less valuable, more or less interesting with an expanded playoff? 503-417-7575 is the number. I want you to answer that question. I'm going to play Punch It Audio. We're going to take a trip around the world of sports. Let's do it. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Paul Feinbaum, SEC honk and mouthpiece, speaking on ESPN, went after George Klyovkov. He heard the interview we did with him on the Konzano and Wilner podcast. Here's Feinbaum. Punch it. No, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed at the cluelessness that this guy continues to exhibit. I mean, he got completely embarrassed uh, and, and, and shaken down uh, when the Big Ten uh, came in and swiped two teams. And then he went in high. He went in the witness protection for a month, and he came out with that statement. There's, there's nothing to back that up. I mean, the only thing going for the Pac-12 right now is the fact that the, the, the playoff I mean, overall, from an expand, from a holding on to everybody, is, is the fact that the, pack, the, the, the CFP is going to expand to 12. Had they had they not decided not to do that, then I think there would already be mass defection. But the Big Ten is still undecided on where it wants to go. I mean, clearly they want Notre Dame, and, and that decision is, is permanently, not permanently, but it's, it's on hold for the time being. But there's no way you can make that statement when we know Washington and, and Oregon and others perhaps have already made contact with the Big Ten about coming their way. I disagree with Feinbaum on this, respectfully. I, I feel like the back-channeling that happened at Oregon and Washington, and I only know this because I'm immersed in reporting and talking with athletic directors, consultants, and conference executives, not just in the Pac-12. But that back-channeling goes on in a lot of places. I think it would have been irresponsible for Oregon not to reach out or have their consultants reach out to the Big Ten Conference consultants. But I was told very early on by a Big Ten Conference athletic director that the Big Ten was not interested in Oregon or Washington. It just didn't pencil out. And in fact, when the Big Ten invited UCLA and USC into the conference, that question was asked. UCLA, USC, they said, is anyone else going with us? And they said, no. Nobody else pencils out. Just doesn't work. So I think there was a lot of hysteria. There was a lot of vibration on the ground after those uh, two Southern California teams left. But I do believe George Klyovkov, when he says he feels confident, nobody's leaving for the Big 12, nobody's leaving for the Big 10, not in this cycle. Decade from now, 20 years from now, who knows what college athletics is going to look like. But I believe him. I do think he looks bad, though. Going dark, not talking for so long. Feinbaum hit him with it, and I think it's a justified criticism. You went into witness protection for a month when you should have been out talking. You should have been. Feinbaum also talked about USC. Is USC still in the Pac-12? Will they be recognized as a 
Pac-12 member or is it just USC? Punch it. I think it probably comes down to either Clemson or, or Southern Cal right now. And a couple weeks ago, she shot. I was worried about Southern Cal, but I'm not worried about them now. I think they basically have about a two-game season. Uh, the most difficult game being at Utah, which which I, I still think is a formidable team, but but they're playing with, with such explosive explosiveness. I, I didn't expect it. I mean, I thought they would be significantly better. Uh, I still I'll, I'll, I'll defer to you on their defensive side of the ball, but but offensively right now they can hang with almost any team around. So I think uh, I, I think they they have to be considered a serious threat because I don't you know, you, uh, again uh, I see a couple of good teams. That, in the Pac-12, the records are deceiving, but I, I don't see a team that is on their level from a talent standpoint. I think that's uh, I think that's arrogant. I don't think he's watching the Pac-12. USC's got to play Washington State. USC's got to play Utah. USC's got to play this Saturday night against a team that pushed them around the Coliseum a year ago. I'm not saying Oregon State's going to win the game, but there's some tests here for USC. Granted... USC doesn't play Washington in the regular season. USC doesn't play Oregon in the regular season. So they have an easier time of it. That game October 15th at Utah is really interesting. Because anybody who knows how Utah plays in Rice-Eccles Stadium understands that is not a gimme. But again, the propaganda machine nationally, the East Coast bias, the SEC bias... The glow of ESPN's footprint, all of that factors into everything that we're hearing right now. It's a little obnoxious to me. I don't think USC is going to get through this gauntlet without losses, plural. Washington State, Utah, Oregon State. Yes, they play. They have a softer time of it with Arizona, Colorado, Cal. UCLA is not a gimme. Unfortunately, Notre Dame, late in their season, their last game, probably is a gimme. But could this be a 10-win team? Sure. But let's not anoint them as the team in the Pac-12 conference until they get by Utah well, on act, October 15th. To act like this game against Oregon State when it's a less than a touchdown, less than a full touchdown spread is not a game to be worried about is just naive. Like, it's just insane. Yeah. Not paying attention. I don't think they're paying attention. I think they know the brand of USC and... Unfortunately, that's this is the game we're stuck in because you know, for people who don't know, you know, Feinbaum, he's a he's an SEC guy, who's SEC, SEC's partnerships with ESPN. ESPN has the playoff. Of course, they would love USC in the playoff. You know, it'd probably be the only acceptable answer west of the Rockies for ESPN. USC. Oh, we'll get the LA market. Dan Landing and the Ducks going to Pullman, Washington. Does Dan Lanning know what he's in for? He talked about the atmosphere at Washington State. Let's hear what he said. Punch it. I've been up there once when I was a graduate assistant as, uh, at Arizona State. You know, I know they're passionate fans. I think that, that uh, every one of us knows that. We've talked about the false starts that their environment can create, some of the stuff that they've done in the history uh, of their program there. So it's a good environment. We all know that. Dan Lanning was there as a GA. Now he's going there as a head coach. I've seen some coaches... Get punched in the nose there. Mario Cristobal suffered a devastating setback early in his time uh, as the coach of the Ducks. Dan Lanning and the Ducks better show up to play because 
Washington State, especially on defense, is good. I think Oregon's got too much offense for them, but Washington State can cause you some problems. Bennett Williams talked about the defense at Oregon preparing for the coup grade. Here's Bennett. Punch it. Oh, uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of ten sets, a lot of receivers. Um, a lot of receivers in their in their in their sets. Um, definitely different than last week, right? Um, but it presents a new challenge for us, um, and one that we feel like we can we can uh, handle. It's going to be a lot of a lot of discipline, um, and it comes down to I mean, at the end of it, right? We can scheme it up as much as we want, but it comes down to being able to 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 win your one on one at the end of it. So I'm excited for that opportunity. Got to win your one on one. You got to do it in Pullman. Interesting psychological challenge in front of Oregon. Same challenge in front of USC as they go to Corvallis. I think Washington State and Oregon State are tough places to play in the Pac-12. It's just it's you're going into a 33,000 seat stadium. You're dealing with a lot of open landscape on the way to the stadium. I just think psychologically it feels like you're a little bit in the middle of nowhere. And I and I, and I think that plays into it. Aaron Judge thumping home runs for the Yankees. Here's how number 60 sounded. Punch it. Three infielders on the left side for Judge and here's the 3-1. Joe deep to left field. There it goes. Number 60. Slide over, babe. You there it is as the gates opened for tonight's game at yankee stadium yankee fans who had general admission bleacher tickets began streaming into the outfield seats they wanted to get uh, a shot at history judge hit home run number 60 in the ninth inning last night and he's now trying to break roger maris's american league record of 61 home runs. He's on pace to hit 66. Aaron Judge. What do you do if you catch the ball? You catch, you know, let's say you catch number 61. Everybody's been talking about it today. What are you doing with that ball? Well, you saw what the guy got for 60, right? Just a picture with him and gave it back to him for free, which is insane. But isn't that the isn't that the kind thing to do? Yeah, but I mean this is America. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what would you have asked for? Uh, I mean, if catch I'm a, number 61, what are you asking for? If I'm a Yankee fan, I'm definitely asking for, like, season tickets for a certain amount of years. I would have to figure that out, um, you know, and then some signed memorabilia, all that kind of stuff. But I think season tickets is where the opening starts at, and then after that, just add on a bunch of different, uh, you know, swag. Did yeah. you guess, if yeah, I catch that ball, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. Whoever Did I'm you see with, the like, dog pile Yeah. for number 60? Insane. The guy got dogpiled, came away with the ball, and then just asked for a photo? Yeah, and he was a 20-year-old 20 20-year-old 20 college kid, and him and his buddies just like, yeah, let's just go to the game tonight, like out of nowhere. And then they get the ball. Man. It's like, that could have changed his life, you know? Number 61. You get number 61, maybe you ask for season tickets, autograph bat. What do you want? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's season tickets. I think it's a lot of memorabilia. And if it's not that, then, then I'm taking it, and I'm going to try to sell it. Lincoln Riley, USC coach, talked about playing Oregon State. Punch it. Yeah, a lot of challenges. You know, they do a good job in their different personnel groupings. Um, they're, they're very creative with the personnel that they use. Um, 
they've certainly got a system that they believe in, a style of ball that they believe in, and they do it very well. Uh, quarterback's playing good ball for him. You see his experience um, um, starting to show up more and more as he gets more game reps. And then, uh, yeah, they just present a lot of challenges in terms of all the things they do with their tight ends, their motions, their run game, marrying the play-action game off of it. Um, so um, it'll be a big challenge for us, there's no question. You know what I don't hear from him? Is he? Does he not think Oregon State has good players? Hear about their personnel groupings and what the coaches do? I don't know. Maybe it's just how Lincoln Riley thinks about the chess match. I'll ask Jonathan Smith about that coming up. Uh, we'll also talk in greater depth uh, in this hour about Dan Lanning, what he's walking into on Saturday. But I want to know, in the regular season, is it more or less interesting, more or less valuable with an expanded playoff in college football? 503-417-7575. You weigh in. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. In the home studio where I do this show, I am surrounded by memorabilia and artifacts. Some sports memorabilia, some artifacts. Got an old typewriter in here. Got uh, anybody comes into this room, uh, gets their picture taken. We put it on the wall. Uh, there is a sign on the wall, though, that says, Beware of pickpockets. Uh, I don't know where I got it, but uh, the eight-year-old just came in here and read the sign and then ran out of the room. So, Anna... Why did we have the Beware of Pickpockets sign in the uh, in the bar here, in the uh, bar studio, whatever this room is? Uh, I never noticed that at the bottom it says New Orleans Police Department. Hmm. Apparently. So maybe you got it in New Orleans. I don't know. Maybe I pickpocketed it out of New Orleans. Pickpocketing, it, guys, help me if I'm wrong. Like, is it, a, is it a lost art form as far as crime goes? Like, you don't hear about your friends getting pickpocketed these days. Yeah. Good point. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, I, I haven't done extensive research on this. Uh, maybe I should. But it, that used to be a thing. My favorite is when you pose a question like that, yeah. and there's literal radio silence. Because well, they don't know what to do with it. That's yeah, Sean and me just looked at each other, made yeah. eye contact, and I was like, yeah, you, you, go? you go. No, you know. You go. <laughs> okay, let's just say that. Raise your hand if you've ever been pickpocketed. You've been pickpocketed? No, I haven't. Nope. But every movie I watched growing up, there was a pickpocket in the movie. Well, we don't live in the times of Oliver Twist anymore. Uh, that's, that's a question I should ask like my parents or like if you have grandparents, ask them. I guess the modern day pickpocket would be cybercrime. Yeah, identity scammers, theft. Identity theft. Identity theft. You know, I think it's a big deal. I was talking to a friend who went to a concert uh, and he was he had floor seats and I think he was telling me about some pickpocketing that was going on. Like, you know, people while people were having fun enjoying the concert, someone was going around trying to grab things out of people's pockets. Oh, really? Oh, wow. So, still alive and well, John. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, Good, good to know. know. Make it good a comeback. To know. Good to know. Well, now, <laughs> you know when you see people <laughs> and... Thank uh, goodness there's still pickpocketing <laughs> going on. When you see people that insist on wearing their backpack on the front of their chest instead of as a backpack... I always think like, wow, that person is really cautious. They're just waiting. They're averting the pickpocket. Well, you, nothing, yeah. you, you do know that fanny packs are back, right? 
Like fanny. Yeah. My, my, my wife has a fanny pack, and I think that's part of the reason why. Is like I, she has a backpack when she coaches track, but now she can put her things in her little fanny pack, which I hate, and I told her that I don't like it, but she yeah. does it anyway. Does she wear it as a fanny pack, or does she wear it like that real trendy way where it's sort of like a fanny pack, but it's slung around your shoulder? Yeah, it's over the shoulder for sure. Yeah, uh, you know, that's as as a high school teacher, she saw the kids do it, so she does it. Uh-huh. I think the only acceptable fanny pack is one that is holding a firearm. You know, I, I've seen people do that. Gee, what? I, do, I just don't think that, I think it's an unnecessary accessory. I've never seen anyone carrying oh, a I firearm have. in a fanny pack. I have. Pack, I, had, I saw a police, I had coffee with a police officer. He had a fanny pack and I started to make fun of him and he said, I have a firearm in there. Isn't that I, a holster? No, That's no, no. a holster. It was a fanny pack. It's not a Western, okay? <laughs> it was a fanny pack and I said to him, what's... Oh, you got a fanny pack. That's a real manly thing. And he said, there's there's actually my firearms in there. And I said, oh, never mind. <laughs> so I stopped making fun of him. But what's the point of the fanny pack? I don't get it. It can be effective. What if you're hiking or running for a long period of time? Okay, so what's in there? Uh, you, you know, need? Nutrition, nutrition and your car phone keys? and, yeah, your car keys. I could see why it would be effective. I own one. I don't I don't wear it much, <laughs> but I own one. <laughs> you should have had to say that before you started defending it. Like, my, my wife don't wear it because she doesn't like purses or, like, bags, so she sometimes goes fanny pack. Hmm. I'm a big fan of the fanny pack, but I haven't elevated to the point where – I'm wearing it the cool way that everybody else is wearing it. I'm still wearing it as a fanny pack. But I will, I will say I, you know, I commend her because she used to just have, like hand me her things, and I'd have to hold it like in that episode of Seinfeld when Jerry had to hold, you know, he had the purse. Yeah. Oh I, yeah. I, I, I'd have to hold all her stuff, so I, I'm okay with it because of that reason. But I just don't like the look of it. No, because yeah, because you'd rather be holding a fanny pack than a giant purse. Right, and I don't want to yeah. hold her things either. So. Yeah. Your wife is a teacher, God bless her, and she works with high schoolers. Yeah, crazy. I know. Wow. Does she come home just exhausted? Surprisingly, no. I think she's really good at her job, which is really insane. I don't know how she does it. They couldn't pay me enough to work with high schoolers. Yeah, me either. And she That's coaches, a little and she unfair. Too. That's an unfair statement to high schoolers. Why? Not all high schoolers. It's not are... really about them. It's about me. I don't yeah. have the patience to deal with them. I would argue high schoolers would be easier to work with than other ages. I think middle school would be the tough one. I think it's the people. In general, like <laughs> just dealing with people. Yeah. It's just dealing with people. Because when you I know? think of when I was at my least mature, <laughs> it's six through eight. Great. Yeah. I, I feel like that's the time where kids are a little bit crazy. Yeah. You well, were... And you're thrown in the hormonal changes. Mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. She used to teach middle school and she said that was her least favorite thing yeah. by far. She wanted to get back to high school. I could I mm. could see middle school being a little bit like prison, you know, that. <laughs> Just that mind that you got everybody in the cafeteria. They're all hell breaking loose. A lot of contraband going on. Like it's, you know, it's just it. And you and they have know, they know everything, right? When we were thirteen or fourteen, I was never wrong about anything. I just learned. Oh yeah, I'm smart. I, I know everything. When did that change? That's true. Good point. Good point, Anna. <laughs> Put it in a fanny pack. Um, hey, let's let's kick around the original question here. Um, the oh, there was an original uh, the college football playoff is expanding to twelve from four teams there were um there were some uh, proponents of this that said hey it'll make the regular season more fun other people said no it will may it will diminish the regular season like ohio state michigan won't mean anything uh george kuyovkov said this the other day when we were interviewing him he said that he felt like the media rights for the regular season would be worth more because there would be more interest in the regular season because more teams 
would be in the playoff hunt. Now, that makes sense to me. I, I got to thinking about this. I woke up today thinking about it. Is the playoff, does it make the regular season more interesting, less interesting, more valuable, less valuable? Go. I think for teams outside of the SEC and maybe a team like Ohio State, I think it, it makes it more interesting because every game is going to matter. And if you're in the Pac-12, you're probably going to get that one guaranteed team in. You may not get that second team in for sure, so you need to get those wins, and you need to you know elevate yourself to at least get to that Pac-12 title game to try to be that representative. So I think it does matter for the Pac-12 more, but when you're looking at Alabama or Georgia or Ohio State, it's definitely a lot less of that because they're going to be afforded to lose a game, possibly, probably even two games, and you know that's not going to happen. The expanded playoff is just going to be so much better for for everything because it makes it definitely makes the regular season more interesting. Um, you know that way you, you you can afford to lose two, maybe even three games. And so if you're a team like Oregon, you lose week one. Well, if Oregon gets that second loss coming up here, then suddenly I think you know some Duck fans and some fans around the country are going to be less interested. Um, I also want to find a way in college football to lose some of these. You know, I'm looking at the slate this weekend. Can State versus Georgia or Penn State versus Central Michigan. Uh, if there's a way, maybe an expanded playoff, it, it allows a little bit more margin for error in your season, and then we can get some of these lopsided games like Ohio State Toledo last week out of the way. But I understand there's a big money issue there, and you know those schools are those schools are making a big buck for playing those teams. There's like 130 major college programs in the country. Um, not all of them have a chance to make the playoff. We know that. And not all of them have a chance to make an expanded playoff. There's only 12 spots. I would argue that there, in a given year, there's probably more like 30 to 35 teams that have a shot to get into the 12-team playoff. It, it doesn't capture everyone, but when you have a four-team playoff, I feel like there's about 11 teams that have a chance to get into the playoff in a given year. So I think you're, you're tripling, if not quadrupling, the field. And, and then I'm looking at the Pac-12 games this weekend. Like, tell me, UCLA-Colorado, it's a dog of a game. But given that UCLA is undefeated, you would go, hey, UCLA's in the hunt. This is an important game for them. Maybe, maybe at least pay attention to that game. Oregon-Washington State, of course you pay attention to it because suddenly this, this game has playoff implications. Who's going to win the Pac-12 is a playoff berth. And maybe there's an at-large berth at stake here. Even if they, you know, so the winner of that game is in great position. So I think it increases the regular season value. Like it me, it makes this game meaningful. And USC going to Oregon State would be a meaningful game because the Beavers are going, hey, if we can get uh, a win in this game, we are well positioned to maybe win the conference or maybe get an at-large berth. That's a quality win against USC. And frankly, the loser of the game isn't knocked out anymore. It, 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 as Sean pointed out, it's going to take two or three losses to knock you out of the playoff picture. So I think there's more interest, more intrigue. I don't know if Cleopatra is going to be able to get more money for it, but I think from a fan standpoint, it's a win. Does it take the luster off of the actual playoff, though, by expanding by two teams? You know, does it make it less elite? Because that you know that the 12 teams who are there have, like, stunning records and – they, they, they're really deserve, deserving to be there. I think, are you saying going from 4 to 12, does it take the luster off? Yeah. I, I, feel, I, th I feel like it, I mean, I'll speak for myself, it feels more inclusive. I have felt like the entire Pacific time zone 
has just not mattered in college football. You just lop it off. They have not participated mm -hmm. in the playoff. They've only been, you know, of the 32 playoff berths in eight years, only two of them have gone to Pac-12 teams. So it's like you look at that and you go, you haven't really had a dog in the fight. So I think expanding the field makes the entire country feel like, like the NCAA tournament, I feel like we have a, you know, we have an east, we have a west, we have a south, you know, we, we have a north, we have, you know, there's all these brackets and everybody feels like, you know, every region of the country feels like they are participating. Mm -hmm. Okay, the, the worst part about college football right now is how, how much disparity there is between, you know, the two or three best teams in the country and then everyone else. If this playoff happens, it, it, once they expand the playoff, then more teams are going to make the playoff, and then suddenly teams are going to have a better recruiting pitch, and they're going to get better players. And, you know, the, the players are going to start spreading the wealth a little bit, going to different schools because schools are able to say, hey, we made the playoff, or hey, we're going to make the playoff this year. You can come be in the national spotlight. Like, I have the list in front of me of schools since 2014 that would have made the playoff if it was 12. There's some schools that really uh, you make you look twice here. Colorado's on this list. Stanford's on this list. Arizona's on this list. Imagine the Pac-12 if, you know, some of those schools were more relevant because they would have made the playoff recently. And you also think about the money that they're, they're talking about. The distributions will be, you know, if you make the playoff, you're going to get a windfall. Uh, but everybody, every Power 5 team will get a distribution whether you make it or not. So everybody's going to get a little more money and i think sean's right like it won't just be clemson and alabama and georgia being able to say hey you come to our university you're going to play you're going to make the playoff you can make the playoff from a you know there's probably 30 schools that could say it with a straight face so i do think it kind of takes the talent pool i'm not saying georgia and alabama and and uh, clemson are not still going to be the best teams in america they might still but i think it it at least introduces a chance for someone else to win. But what does it do to the games like Michigan versus Ohio State when both those teams have one loss or zero losses and you know both those teams are going to get into the playoff? That game has no purpose for it anymore because you know both those teams will be in the top 12. They'll get to the playoff. So that's the one argument I have is that, well, this is one of the biggest rivalry games, but it doesn't matter who wins or who loses. Both these teams are still going to be in the playoffs. So what does this game even matter? Well, we're, they're talking about top four seeds getting buys. So get it, winning that game could be big. Like, you want to be, be a host because, you know, in the opening round, the teams with the higher-ranked teams are going to host on their own campus. So you're playing for the ability to host. You're playing for the ability to get a buy. So I think there's importance there. If you're, if you're Michigan, you want to be in front of Ohio State. You don't want to have to go to Ohio State and play a game, and you, you certainly don't want to have – you know, you'd love to be on your own campus if you are not in the top four. So I think that there's still some something to play for there. Yeah, I think if that's the way it is and it's, you know, home field advantage, I think that will, you know, liven it back up because there's going to be a lot of these games where there's teams, you know, the SEC championship when it's Alabama and Georgia, that game's not going to have any matter because both these teams are going to be in the playoffs. So if it is with home field advantage on the line or a bye, yeah, I'm down with that. Does Dan Lanning know what he's walking into on Saturday in Pullman? We'll talk about it. Plus, the Oakland A's stadium project has stalled. What does it mean for Portland in Major League Baseball? Leave it here. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
Yeah, big guest this week, Jonathan Smith, Oregon State's coach, coming up in about 20 minutes right here on this station. Uh, tomorrow on the show, Bo Nix, University of Oregon quarterback, will be joining us tomorrow, as well as uh, Jaden Grant, Oregon State. Ashley Adamson of the Pac-12 Network uh, coming up uh, Thursday or Friday. I'm blanking on which day she's coming on. I think it's Friday. Uh, we had Yogi Roth yesterday. Uh, and uh, a whole bunch of other guests uh, that are all lining up. Uh, love that we're getting Bo Nix on the show. Um, I don't think he's done an interview yet, guys. This this will be good to get Bo Nix on. Yeah, now that he seems like he's really uh... – you know, taking command of that quarterback role, it was you know, and we all kind of thought that he was going to be the guy. Um, and then after that Georgia game, there was always just so many questions. And when Ty Thompson came out against Eastern Washington, he got that big eruption. He got a big roar from the crowd. But you know, Bo has really put his uh, put his stamp on this team, and you know, I think that's the best case for Oregon going forward. So uh, yeah, it'd be cool to hear from, him, hear from him. What do I need to ask Bo Nix? What do you guys want to know? About I, I want to know how he, I mean, this is a guy that was from Alabama, you know, spent his entire upbringing in the South. What brought him to Oregon? You know, because I always thought that was just kind of a, a random transfer. It's, you know, it's one thing for a Pac-12 guy to transfer to another Pac-12 school. But, you know, his dad was such a big Auburn fan and now he's just an Oregon duck, other side of the country. So that's something I'm curious about. I would want to know about the speed of the SEC and if it really is that much of a difference between the SEC and now that you know he hasn't had a Pac-12 game yet, but they played BYU, Eastern Washington. They played a lot of other teams. Is it really that much of a difference, or does it kind of get overblown a little bit? Uh, I think it is. I saw Georgia. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. well, let's see. Let's see what he says. I want to ask him. Um, I want to ask him a couple things. I want to ask him. Uh, I want to know who he is away from the field. I want to know what he does that's not football-related. I want to know what his favorite class was at Auburn or at Oregon. I want to know how comfortable he is in this offense. I want to know Kenny Dillingham, the offensive coordinator. What What's Kenny Dillingham like compared to maybe the coordinators he's had at other places? And is there a favorite play call? I always love this question with a quarterback. Because, like, uh, linemen will tell you they have a formation or a play call that they love, that it comes into the game, they go, oh, that's the play I love to run. I want to know if he has a play that he loves to run. Anna, what do you want to know? Uh, I want to know how his wedding went uh, this summer and what married life is like for him right now during the football season. Wow. <laughs> married life. <laughs> Say you have a fanny pack without saying you have a fanny pack. <laughs> yeah, I just think it. it's interesting, you know, here he is. <laughs> like, it was a big summer for him. He got married. He had, like, a beautiful southern wedding and... And all that. Like, what, I what's know a southern how wedding? What's a southern <laughs> wedding? What are we talking about? I got to wear a bow tie? What are we talking about? Bolo uh, tie. Well, it happened, I think, in Alabama. So that classifies it as like a southern wedding. I don't Guess know. Guess so. <laughs> Can we have a southern wedding here? I don't know. I also want to know, you know, Bo Nix, he, he's got another year of eligibility after this one. But everyone seems to be acting like this is a one-year rental type deal uh, with, hmm. you know, especially with the big quarterback coming in. So I'd be curious. I know he's not going to give you a good answer there. But I am just kind of curious whether oh. this could be a two-year deal with Bo Nix. He'll, he'll answer. He'll answer the question. He knows the name of the show. You got to come on the show. You face the music. Anything else that I should be asking him away? Like, I always like to start thinking about this stuff ahead of time. But, you know, when he comes on the show, we're going to we're going to we're going to grill him. You can't handle the truth. We'll go after him. I want to know how he handled the pressure when, you know, people were already calling for Ty Thompson to replace him. Like, how does he deal with that noise? Does he hear it? Does it get to him? 
how does he quell it in his own head? Okay. Yeah, he now, took a lot of backlash after that Georgia game nationally. I I kind of feel that's what like that's why he didn't do any interviews. I think he wanted the noise gone. I don't think he wants to deal with all this other stuff. I it was really interesting. I asked for him. I asked Oregon if I could interview Bo Nix during fall camp, and they said you can, but you have to interview all three quarterbacks. Mm-hmm. So Dan Lanning wanted all three quarterbacks to feel like they were in a competition, that there wasn't one guy who had separated who was going to do the big interviews or whatever. So it was interesting when I asked for him again, uh, I asked Oregon's football sports information director after last Saturday's game, they beat BYU, Bo Nix looked great. I said, hey, I said, it's, it's time for Bo Nix to come on the show. And he goes, he, it looks like he separated himself from the other two. Like he started all the games. And so... Um, I get he's, you know, the sports information guy is caught in the middle between the coach and me. And I said to him, we got to get him on. This would be a, this would be a, and and here's the other thing. Oregon is struggling to sell tickets. They did not sell out the BYU game. Hmm. Oregon has some home games here. I kind of feel like, you know, Oregon needs to rally the troops a little bit, get out and start doing some interviews. Be, get let get drum up some excitement. They got to win on the field, but also I think it would be good for Bo Nix to do an interview, sell some tickets. Correct me if I'm wrong, but so there was a brand new transfer portal rule that says anyone that was in the transfer portal this season, like just a couple weeks ago, they can't transfer now until December, right? Isn't that a brand new rule? And do you think that has anything to do with you know finally getting this Bo Nix interview through? I I don't know because I I felt like the coaching staff was standing in the way. It wasn't Bo. So I felt like they just wanted to not separate one quarterback from the others. Because I was told I could have him on, but I had to have Ty Thompson and Jay Butterfield as well. Like all three of them at the same time? I was like, you know. Right, well, now they're not going to lose Butterfield and Thompson because oh, I see what you're saying. Rule. I, uh, I and see so what you're maybe saying. now they're like, yeah, you can have Bo Nix. He's a starter. But, but I think the question's being answered. Like Butterfield knows he's not starting against Washington State. Like, you know, Ty Thompson, they all know now that there's a pecking order and Bo's at the top of it. He played really well in the last two games, and so I think, I don't know, there's probably a variety of factors in it, but I just want people to hear his voice, get to know him a little bit. Like, that that's my aim generally with this interview. So tomorrow's show, I believe at 4 o'clock tomorrow, that's the time that we are targeting. Bo Nix will be on the program. Does Dan Lanning know what he's walking into at Pullman? He said he does, but does he really know it? They asked him about, at practice, they asked Dan Lanning, you know, do you know what you're getting into here? Like, you know, it's it's Pullman, Washington. It's a tough place to play. And Dan Lanning said this. I've been up there once when I was a graduate assistant as, uh, at Arizona State. You know, I know they're passionate fans. I think that uh, every one of us knows that. We've talked about the false starts that their environment can create, some of the stuff that they've done in the history uh, of their program there. So it's a good environment. We all know that. I don't think he knows. I think he's talking about false starts, the environment. I looked up that season. It was 2012 when Dan Lanning was a graduate assistant at Arizona State. Um, Washington State in that game came in with a three. They finished three and nine that year. It was late, late in the season. Um, and, oh, by the way, um, you know, Arizona State won the game pretty easily. I don't think he quite understands what it is. It To me, going to play at Pullman is you're going to play against a pretty good Washington State team that is very good on defense, but pretty good in general. you got a fan base there that is, that is, you know, it's not the loudest place in the conference, but it's loud enough. The atmosphere matters. 
But I think the bigger thing is when you come into a place like Pullman, Corvallis, Tulsa, Oklahoma, I've been, you know, Salt Lake City even with Utah, you fly in, there's not a lot around the area that you're flying into. You're you're looking at fields and farms and tractors and and I think there is a um, there's a psychological disconnect, and then all of a sudden you're playing a, a very important football game against a team that is very focused. Like I think there's a danger of losing focus when you go to those places. I've seen teams do it. Hmm, that's interesting. I, I I would never think of it that way because for me it just feels like you know the college student athletes they're just on another bus or they're on another plane and they're their attention is just to what is on the field like if anything the crowd enthusiasm would matter but i wouldn't think that like the geography around the actual stadium would and the travel too i mean you're look you're you're flying in and you know in corvallis has the same uh, dynamic to it and and i think it's good those are pullman washington and corvallis oregon are two of the true college towns in the conference Mm -hmm. You know, Cal does Cal Berkeley's not a college town. Stanford's not a college town. UCLA, USC are not college towns. You could argue that Arizona State is, but it, yeah, it's in the Phoenix metropolitan area. Tucson probably more of a college town. Eugene a college town. But the the issue is around Pullman and around Corvallis, what do you have? You have agriculture. You have farms, you have tumbleweed, you have cows, you have tractors, and I do think that's a different psychological approach for a visiting team. You know, it's not USC going to play a football game in the Phoenix area where they're flying in, they have friends and family who are going to go to the game, and it's not that far from L.A. for their home fan base to make a trip. And you go in and you're in a city and there's a football game and a football stadium. I had this I, – I, I talked years ago to a team that was going to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Fresno State was going to Tulsa, Oklahoma to play. And Pat Hill, the coach, was insanely worried about that. And he was saying, when you, when you go in there – just mentally, you feel like you're going to another planet. It, yeah. It's not like where you're from. And so you get in there and you kind of look around and go, gosh, we're in the middle of nowhere here. And it feels like you're in the middle of nowhere. But it, there's a little bit of an ambush going on. Are you arguing as well that like the Cougars or maybe the Beavers, their players have the opportunity to be more hyper-focused on football because not being in a place like L.A., for example, where there's a million distractions in the entertainment venues and clubs and whatnot, that those players have the opportunity to be more focused on their sport? Also that I think they're used to it, and it's their fan base that's there. And mm-hmm. so look at what happened last year when Oregon State played at home. Oregon State was 6-0 and at home, 6-0, and undefeated, 1-6 and on the road. It, it was interesting to me. And then I looked at Washington State, too, you know, when you look back at Washington State, Washington State played really well at home last year. And I thought, gosh, what is that about? They beat, you know, they beat Stanford at home. They beat Oregon State at home. Uh, they played, uh, you know, they had to go to Utah. But uh, I felt like Washington State was a different team at home. And I, and I kind of look at those places to play. I'm not saying it holds up all the time. But, you know, when I was looking up USC today, going to Corvallis, it surprised me that USC go, has been to Corvallis in the last seven times they've been there, Oregon State has won four and lost three. Mm-hmm. Like, Oregon State's better than average against USC at home. But if you look at Oregon State's record in the last 20 years, as compared to USC, it's not even close. So what is it about playing in Corvallis? Is it just that it's a home game? Or do the USC players who are in Los Angeles and in Southern California, do they dread coming to Corvallis? 
Like when they're flying in, do they go, look at this place? Is there a psychological advantage there? I just got to wonder. I hope Dan Lanning's ready because I think Oregon suffers that fate sometimes when it goes to Washington State. I've seen the Oregon teams walk in there and they get beat. And I feel like Oregon had more talent. How did they lose this game? Mm -hmm. We'll see what happens. Leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Jonathan Smith, Oregon State coach, coming up in five minutes. Top of the hour. He will be here. He'll be on the show. Want you here for it. That means the 5 at 5 won't happen at 5. It'll happen at about 5.20 or so. So we'll do the 520 things that you need to know at 5.20. That is coming up. Anna. We got a volleyball player in the family. Again. A second timer. Uh, the older daughter played volleyball. The middle daughter is now just starting to play volleyball. Did we learn anything from the first experience? Uh, yeah. We learned not to push too hard, let them kind of develop on their own, and that the progression, at least at eight years old, can be relatively slow. <laughs> just to have patience. Manage your expectations because the uh, the games at this stage are yeah. like watching Pong. Yeah. In what way? Like just the serving because they serve back and forth and that's it? Oh, I mean, if there's more than one hit, if there's a serve and there's like a return, it's very exciting. So, uh, and if there's a third hit even, I mean, the crowd goes wild. So uh, it's just it's just fun yeah. at this stage. It'll be good. Yeah, you know, I think it'll be good to uh, you know get a. Let's see if we've grown any. That if anything else, I think the other thing we've learned is um, don't push too hard. And I don't think we pushed the older daughter too hard, but I I I still wish I would have told her, hey, take a take a year off of private lessons, or you don't need to do all that all the time because I think sometimes it's just mentally draining for kids. Like they they play too many games. There's too many games. Yeah, there's a lot of that. But then there's also just sort of like I what I love about volleyball is just the what what you can learn about being on a team and just the personal accountability, you know, like if the ball drops between you and another player, that's on you. If you miss a ball and or you shank it, you go shag it. Like you're not just standing around and waiting for somebody else to do that for you. And so I, you know, I, I love the sport for a number of reasons. Yeah, I, uh, I think it's a good sport. I, I like it better than soccer because in soccer, you got to be outside. <laughs> and I true. think that that is a problem. <laughs> Steven, have you learned any? Are your kids playing sports? Have you learned anything or? Uh, yeah, my oldest has played sports. He's played uh, soccer and basketball, baseball. He had a golf camp this summer. Uh, yeah, I've learned, um, you know. You know, because I don't want to be overbearing, you know, both me and my wife are college athletes. And so I think, you know, there's a little bit of pressure on them to be really good. Uh, but I don't want to do that. You know, I just want them to have fun. And I just try to reiterate, you know, it is fun to play sports. But I also like to tell him it's a lot more fun when you're winning or when you're good. So you need to, like, work hard and get better at it and not just sit around and, you know, twiddle your thumbs. So if you actually like a sport, you want to be good at it because it's way more fun when you're scoring goals or you're making baskets or things like that. And I think, look, we all want our kids to be part of something larger than themselves. We want them to learn conflict resolution. Uh, what is it to be a good teammate? All these things. Like, And we hear professional athletes and college coaches, they'll say all the time that they like to recruit kids who play multiple sports. 
I'll ask Jonathan Smith about that coming up. Plus, they're hosting USC. Jonathan Smith has been there as a player, beat USC at Research Stadium. He's been there as a coach. He beat USC at the Coliseum a year ago. How is he feeling about this game in his group going into uh, a matchup on Saturday that could be the last time that USC ever comes to Corvallis? I know that home stadium, that home crowd is going to be rocking. I keep hearing from people who are going to go to the game. But we'll talk to Jonathan Smith about all of that and more coming up next. I want you to leave it right here. Uh, Oregon State football coach Jonathan Smith is next. Jaden Grant on tomorrow's show. Bo Nix on tomorrow's show. But next we get the coach of the Beavers. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Oregon State is undefeated, 3-0, playing at home on Saturday against USC. It's a sellout. Tickets on the secondary market. Prices starting to rise. Like a standing room only ticket is like 90 bucks now. $450 if you want to sit between the uh, 20s. Oregon State getting ready for a big matchup. Uh, they beat USC last year at the Coliseum. It was a big win for Jonathan Smith. And he's joining us now. How you doing, man? Yeah, doing doing well, man. In our routine here on a, on a Wednesday. Always something going on, but... Uh, I was getting getting pretty excited about a weekend uh, home game. You guys been playing that Trojan fight song at practice? Everybody seems to do that. Are you doing that? We are. We're intermixing, not the entire time of practice, but we intermix it. And, and again, the the logic there, they're going to bring their band and they're going to play that song quite a bit. And so we're just helping prepare them for the atmosphere on Saturday. The, are they, you guys, you have a new sound system going in just for this game. Is that is that right? Have you heard it yet? Have you got a chance? Is that what you're playing this on? Uh, no, the the stadium we're we're bringing new sound in, and I've heard them test it here in my office. But we got our separate sound system on the practice field. Are you are you like you know leaning out your office window, going, "Hey, I'm trying to work here," while they're <laughs> doing the sound? Yeah, it's been the sound, or it's been the construction man. They got cranes going and hammering it away, which is awesome, but it does get a little distracting sometimes. How you how are you feeling? How are you feeling about? You watch USC on film. What do you you know? You got a common opponent with Fresno State. What do you learn in looking at that tape? Well, they're just so explosive. I mean, offensively, they can score in a hurry. Obviously, it starts with the athletes they got. Quarterbacks as good as we'll see. You know, the scheme, the whole thing. They they can score. Um, and then defensively, you know, these guys have done a great job in the red zone, taking the ball away. And that's why you see such separation in these scores. They played in three games and beating people pretty handily. Offensively, uh, Chance Nolan's been been very good for you guys. Uh, what are you seeing in him that maybe is different than a year ago? Yeah, well, I think he starts with a little bit of his accuracy that stands out to me from a year ago. I think, especially the last couple of weeks, been accurate with the ball, um, pretty poised. You know, I go back to Fresno, needing two two minute drives down the field gets that gets that accomplished. Um, and I think he's got a lot of trust with the guys around him now. I mean, he's put a lot of work in with that receiver tight end group. The whole line's protecting him pretty well. Um, so he's playing with confidence. Luke Musgraves, a lot of people asking me what's going on with him. Uh, I think you've already said he's out for this game. Is it a potential season ender, or is that still up in the air? Is he just healing? What's what's happening with him? Yeah, that's a, 
I, I wouldn't describe it as season ending at this point. Uh, he's obviously got to do some recovery, um, but there's quite a bit of window on what, how quickly he recovers. The window to you know be able to play a football game, but it's not not season ending. You guys ran the ball in USC a year ago. You ran all over them, and and I'm waiting for you guys to have that big run game performance. What have you seen with your guys this season? that you know that you like and what do you need on saturday against usc yeah i think running the ball next saturday, this saturday will be huge because then you can possess it for a while because again the longer that offense for theirs is on the sideline the better um i've seen some you know good flashes uh physical play at our run game in the old line and and that again we played some solid defenses against the run i think boys did a good job and fresno uh, and we've hurt ourselves with some penalties getting us in the down the distances where we're not seeing the same pictures to run the ball. So uh, all in all, it's a constant state of improvement, and we know we got uh, a big-time opponent that a run game will, would be huge in this in this game. You grew up going to USC games, you know, sitting on the, what, 40-yard line at the Coliseum or wherever you guys sat, and, you know, this is – I think it meant a lot to you last year when you went to the Coliseum and won – um, what did that mean to you? If we could just look back at a year ago, like it was a pretty validating win for the program. Yeah, no question. Uh, and again, my, my background, going to a bunch of those games growing up, uh, and, and that's a historic, special place, the Coliseum. I mean, we've talked about it all the way back to when the Dodgers were playing there and Jackie Robinson and the Olympics and obviously the history and tradition of SC football. So to go down there and get a win was 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 meaningful. Oregon State hadn't done it in so long, that type of thing. And but obviously you flip the script. It's a brand new year. This is really a new team with so many new players, new coaches. Um, but we get them in at our place and counting on Research State and be rocking again. The the yeah you you've been there for one game, the Boise State opener. You'll get your first conference game there. What do you need from that home crowd on Saturday? Yeah, we need to affect their their offense. I mean, let's face it. So as loud as we can get first, second, and third down, not just waiting on third down to break up the chainsaw. We need to go in first, second, third to create some confusion. These guys haven't faced much adversity. Let's face it, they haven't turned it over in three games. Credit to them. They've played one road game at Stanford, which half that crowd was USC fans. I mean, we need the home field advantage. We need the crowd jumping and going from from the start uh, to try to affect those guys. I was playing a clip earlier in the show of uh, Paul Feinbaum, who is on the East Coast, of course, and you know he's an SEC guy, but he was talking about USC, and I think he said something that was really disrespectful to you guys and the rest of the conference. He pretty much said they're, they're not going to get tested. You know, USC's not going to get tested. It, how does that sit with you or in your team when you hear stuff like that? Well, yeah, I actually don't, don't agree. And I can't, I'm not just speaking for Oregon State. I think this league will test them for sure. I think Lincoln would say the same thing. Um, there's some good football getting played. I look at the Pac-12 North especially. I think look at Utah. They're going to play Utah. Um, again, I know they skipped some teams uh, in, this, in the schedule. They play you guys. They play Washington State. They play at Utah. I mean, I, I don't, it feels like test to me. Yeah, and I, I'm not a little bit with UCLA. Everyone's not, not a lot of talk about those guys. They're undefeated, found a way to win, yeah, last weekend. Uh, but they're going to be one to be reckoned with, uh, especially with that quarterback up and going. They can move the ball and score. The, the, a big matchup nobody's talking about, I think, is the USC defensive backs against your receivers. And those defensive backs, what I can see, they're physical, they're athletic, they're handsy, they're not afraid to get a penalty. 
Uh, I think they're going to come up and try to say, we're not giving you any separation, beat us. And yeah. I think it's a big challenge for your guys. That'll be that'll be a big part of it because they're not, uh, you know, the run game they're going to start, again, I'm assuming here, but they're going to start with trying to stop that, and that puts DBs on islands. It's not too far from how we try to play. Handsy on our secondary. Length, make challenge you. We expect to see the same thing. they got some good players over there. Um, on that end, but we got to be able to find some balance throwing it, maybe to set up the run and vice versa, um, and know that it's going to be a competitive battle for four quarters. Your your run game, uh, you know, last week. What did you like? It was was it cool to be in Providence Park and kind of look around and know the history of that stadium? And it, everybody who went said it was a fantastic atmosphere. Yeah, it was fun. I mean, we appreciate you know, we got a bunch of Beavers up there, and the place was packed and and loud. I know our guys enjoyed. Uh, the uniqueness of going up there and playing one game. I think it definitely helped that we played well and got a lead and, and you know, obviously won handily. And so I think it was a great night for all involved. Can you maybe help some people out? Because I heard people who said, you know, why didn't they, why did they take their foot off the gas? Like they wanted 100 points or something. But in your business, you know, I think it's a measure of respect that, you know, you, you don't want to lay down for somebody, but you also don't want to embarrass somebody in a situation where you're capable of scoring more than 68 points. What goes through your mind in, in at the end of that game? Yeah, uh, a couple of things. One, I mean, the fourth quarter, it really started. We put a lot of, you know, our twos in, guys that don't start games. And so those are meaningful reps for them to get the experience. They earned that through hard work. Uh, you want to continue to evaluate and have, suit. Some of those guys are injury away from playing a lot. So you want to give them some game experience. I mean, even – Early fourth quarter, we were still throwing the ball. I mean, a lot of times when you get that kind of lead, you just don't don't even throw it. Um, I actually felt like we might have had the gas too long um, because, again, I got a bunch of respect for the big sky, you know, Montana State, those people, and, and the game was in hand. We really need to be uh, keeping our foot on the gas pedal. Um, I thought we could found a good mix of that. Your your guys feel like they're sound like they're pretty locked in. Jaden Grant talks about just going one and zero, just going one and zero. But this is a conference game. This is USC. This is you know a home game in front of your crowd where you guys have been very good. Um, what does it mean to you to, to to get a good performance and play well this week? Aside from the result, just to play play your best game. Yeah, we talk a lot about having a process weekly. You know, each day is kind of get into a routine, and the process is really what is vitally important to have a chance to get the result we want on Saturdays. I go to this maturity of the team. These guys have been locked in uh, going through Tuesday, Wednesday, and now you know, tomorrow, Thursday practice, understanding that that stuff's really important. They got added. Distraction school started today. You know, guys going to class, leaving practice, getting over there. And so that, I almost feel like that's a good thing uh, because mm. it is a lot of hype about this game, being able to take a couple hours away from it, think about something different, and then hopefully uh, – you know, have your mind right when you're on the practice field and watching some tape. Now, I know we want to talk football here, but i got to ask you how you're feeling about your Dodgers this season. Yeah, feeling good, especially if we get our pitching healthy. You know, <laughs> if Gonsolin can come back and, and do it. we got Trinan coming back. Uh, yeah, I'm feeling pretty good about it. My Giants are uh, 32 games behind your Dodgers, so I'm not, I'm not yeah. doing any talking. I love how you, you, you can't let go of the coach. You're you know, you start talking about the pitching rotation. You go right into coach speak, kind of about the Dodgers rotation. Oh, man. Can you be a fan? Can you just go to a sporting event and watch it, or are you always kind of playing the role of coach? Yeah, no, I can't. I mean, well, especially those two sports, baseball and football. I can be kind of a fan, but I'm still even watching basketball. I went up the Blazers a couple times. You know, strategy, timeouts, uh, how many shots a particular guy's getting versus 
uh, not. Uh, I am thinking about that quite a bit. Do you think it's a big deal that Aaron Judge is going to break Roger Maris's home run record as for a Yankee, and he's got 60? Is that, a, is that a big deal, or in today's world is 60 home runs, eh? No, I think that's a huge deal. I mean, I really do. Uh, especially the, the pitching now. There's so much about matchups and you know, different guys and health and staying healthy. I think that's a huge deal. Down, your I know your kid plays baseball. Did you you played as a kid? Oh yeah, I loved it. I, I played a ton, little league, all through high school. Um, yeah, I loved it. All right, you played USC in 2000. You beat him at Reeser Stadium. Hal Cowan, the old SID, told me you handed him the game ball as you're walking up the ramp after the game, and then uh, you saw it again 17 years later when you took the job at Oregon State as he asked you to sign it for him. Um, you know, what was that game like when you go back and you think about, you know, that was 22 years ago? Yeah, that was, uh, I can remember it being pretty early in the schedule, and after, you know, beating those guys i think there was a huge jump of confidence of like actually we can do some stuff this year it might have been like a conference over or the fifth game of the year i mean they were loaded they had carson palmer back there throwing the ball and stuff and the cloud the crowd was going and electric and so i think after getting that win for that particular team in that season that was a huge confidence boost like didn't kenny simonton run wild in that game too oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't exactly remember how many yards, whatnot. I don't think it was close to 200. The guy was going nuts. 234. I'm looking at it right now. Two, he had 234. That must have been fun. And then and it settled something else for me because somebody else asked me about this. They asked me about Chad Johnson. He's, he's saying to the world that he's the best route runner who ever existed on planet Earth. Was he a good route runner or was Chad Johnson just a really good wide receiver, target, athlete out there? Yeah, no, he, he could run a route now, and he could separate. Uh, he didn't always run the correct route, but whatever <laughs> route he was running, he was yeah. he was finding separation because he had that skill set. Yeah, you had Johnson, and you had TJ, and then you had Simonton. That's, that's, you had some weapons. No, no question. I can remember getting in the huddle. TJ was huge for Chad, and we had to start tagging Chad's routes because you know you got to learn this whole playbook. And in fairness to the guy, he just showed up late for one year type thing. But yeah, we'd call Trey Wright raw '94, and usually that'd be enough. But then you had to tag X slant, X post, X dig, <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and of course Chad played X. Yeah, so you had to basically say, Chad, here's what you're running. The rest yep. of us know what we're doing. So there you go, <laughs> Jonathan Smith with us, Oregon State coach. Hey. Good luck to you. Uh, I know it's football, football, football all the time, but will you, sometime between now and Saturday, will you, will you step back a little bit? And, you know, do, do you get a break from studying or film or thinking about the game plan? Oh, you get toward the end of the week. Yeah, Thursdays we get home at a decent hour and hang out with the family a little bit. And that's usually the time to try to take a deep breath. You watch Thursday night football with the family yeah, or do you do yeah, something else? Yeah. Yeah, I'll have it on in the background, but try to find something else going on. I think I got carpool duty. I think all three kids have practices, so you get to go fetch them and watch the last half hour, which is great, but that's what I'll be doing around 6, 7 o'clock. All right, so whenever I do that, I have everybody wants to talk sports with me. They want to, oh, what do you think about the Blazers? What do you think about Oregon State? When you go to practice, what do they do? What do they say to you? Yeah, I, they, usually people are pretty good. Um, they'll, you know, quick question here or there but we can dive into talking about the the kids especially if I'm with the other parents yeah. there and stuff they're usually yeah. pretty good that's good all right good luck to you I will see you Saturday uh, I hope the fans show up uh, you deserve it you guys are three and0 and you got a you, you know big time game Saturday night appreciate it John all right there's Jonathan Smith 
Oregon State football coach. Love that insight. Steven, favorite part of that interview? Oh, the Chad Johnson stuff. That was <laughs> yes. that was awesome. And it just goes to show, like, sometimes it's all God-given, right? Like, you are just that good of an athlete where it doesn't matter if you're, you know, and it, he made the point where, you know, he came in late to the, to the team, and so it wasn't his fault, but he didn't have, even have to know the plays, and he was dominant, and he was yeah. awesome. Like, that's yeah. how good of an athlete Chad Johnson was. So I, that story was awesome. Yeah, I love the uh, I love that they would call the play call and they would go X slant, X dig. Like Chad, this is what you're doing. And, and then he's going for six every time. It's just like yes. you know, like can't stop him. Yeah, Jonathan Smith's out there running around. He's got Ken Simonton behind him. You know, hand the ball to Simonton. He gets two thirty eight against USC. He's got TJ Hushmanzada on one side, who takes some pressure off Chad Johnson. And then you got Ocho Cinco out there, who's you know would go on to you know race horses. Like, literally, foot race against a horse and, uh, you know, declare himself as the best route runner in NFL history. I think Chad Johnson's doing that because he wants some consideration for the Hall of Fame. Because he knows, statistically, he doesn't match up with, like, a Terrell Owens or Randy Moss. So I think what he's trying to do by saying what a great route runner he is, he's been out talking about this for several weeks. Uh, I think he's trying to change the narrative a little bit and say, you know, he was such a good route runner. I think when I think about great route runners, I think about Jerry Rice. Okay, I think about a guy who didn't have game-breaking speed or necessarily size, but just was a fantastic receiver and a great route runner. Like Rice was precise. Chad Johnson strikes me as more of, um, hey, you know what? I'm open even when I'm not open. Throw me the ball. Yeah, like, I'll yeah, get it. Like that's the thing is like you know you look at Chad Johnson's career, great career. But even that last season he had in New England, he was still only 33 years old, where it feel like if you were that great of a route runner, maybe you could have played till you're 34, 35. Like, you would have been more productive because it wasn't all about speed and explosiveness. But, I mean, for having said all that, he was unbelievable. You look at those stats, I mean, those are just some crazy numbers he put up. It'll be a lot of fun. I, I'm looking forward to this game more than ever now on Saturday night. So if you're going to be there, Beaver fans, Jonathan Smith putting some pressure on you, says he needs you on Saturday night. Leave it here. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750, the game. Every once in a while, I'll check my email or my messages during the show, and I got a bunch of messages here. Let's pile through them. Um, you know, on the Oregon State-USC front, um, Jonathan Smith pointed this out. Several of you pointed it out. Heavy D, who's listening to the show, also pointed this out. Like Both of the defensive back groups, Oregon State and USC, both of those groups like to play physical. They like to get up on you. They like to get their hands on you. Jonathan Smith said it himself. He says, that's how we like to play. But I watched. I was watching USC, their defensive backs, closely against Fresno State. They are not afraid to get a penalty. And against Stanford, too. They're not afraid to come up. They're not afraid to get a holding penalty. They're not afraid to get a pass interference penalty. Like, that's kind of the cost of doing business, the way they play. I think it's going to be really interesting to see if Anthony Gold and Treshawn Harrison and, you know, Oregon State's smaller but good receivers can get separation against USC's bigger, more physical defensive backs. Likewise, you have some pretty talented receivers at USC, probably the most talented receiving group um, you know, that's not in the SEC, and 
you have some defensive backs at Oregon State that are very experienced. Oregon State's defensive backfield, you have a seventh-year senior in Jaden Grant, and you got two other players that have played significant games in Pac-12 play. So that is a major factor in the game. So, you know, Oregon State, the, the, the thing that I'm unsettled with about Oregon State in this USC game, I don't know if Oregon State's going to be able to run the ball. I don't know. I don't feel, I don't have a feel for them right now running the football. And they've done it in spots, but they, what they did to USC last year at the Coliseum was special. They put USC's defense on roller skates and just moved them. I don't know if they're going to be able to do that in this game, and I think that is a concern. Um, I also, um, I also think that Chance Nolan has got to be really good in this game. You know, we've seen him. He lit up Boise State. He played really gutsy down the stretch against Fresno State. He made the plays he had to make at the end of the game. That's what good quarterbacks do. They win you a game. Chance Nolan won that game against Fresno State. You know, they made, everybody's talking about Jack Coletto running for the touchdown. Chance Nolan made the plays on that last drive. That's what good quarterbacks, good college quarterbacks do. They make those plays. They win you a game. Uh, I don't think we can really look at the Montana State game and maybe not even the opener against Boise State and get a whole bunch out of it because I just don't think – uh, that it is a good comparison for what they're going to see against USC. But I think Chance Nolan needs to be really good. I think the Oregon State uh, uh, wide receivers are going to have their work cut out for them. I think they need to handle the physicality of USC's secondary. And I think Oregon State has got to find a way to at least run the ball effectively. Or, as some of you have pointed out via Twitter and messages, Oregon State's got to find a reasonable facsimile of a run game using screens, short passes, stuff like that. Thoughts on the game, guys? Do you think that the Oregon State defensive backfield, which has been really good this year with Rajon Wright, Alex Austin, uh, Jaden Grant, like you talked about, are they going to be able to slow down that USC offense on that outside? We talk about the talent of the skill positions that USC has. No one's been able to stop them. No turnovers out of that offense. Can Oregon State slow down, slow them down enough where – it's going to make it so the offense has to score to win, or is that USC offense just going to be too good and Oregon State really has no chance? That's the question, right? I mean, if if you put Oregon State in a position where they've got to score more than 45, they I don't think they can do that to win this game. But I think if that defense can force USC into some long fields or some punts, force a turnover, give themselves a short field, all of a sudden – now the question is, can you run the ball enough to keep USC's defense on the field and you know keep their offense sitting on the sideline? Like that's the game right there. I, I, I feel like Oregon State will be in this game. I just I don't know enough about the run game right now. Sean, you got a feel for it. I don't have a feel for this game. I'm very confident in USC. They're even better than I thought they would be before the season. If you guys remember, I, I was pretty bullish on them before the season, and you guys were the ones that pushed back a little yeah, bit. But they've I'm been really convinced. good. Uh, yeah. From what I've seen from USC so far this season, um, 
they they always get off to good starts. You know, like they they get the confidence going early. I watched them against Stanford. It was fourteen zero in the snap of the fingers. Us, uh, you know, in the blink of an eye, I should say. Um, and then against Fresno State, I watched them walk down the field their first drive of the game. So I think Oregon State's going to be really key. It's their first hostile road environment for USC. I think it's going to be really key that you know those first couple of drives get some defensive confidence going and maybe try to try to shaken up uh, USC a little bit at the very beginning. The spread on this game, I've seen it at six and a half. I've seen it at six. I've seen it at seven. Where does it belong? I think that's right. I think it's right there, right? Six or seven. Because the thing about Oregon State is, and we talked about this, if they could run the football, they're going to be in the ball game Because that offense with Jonathan Smith, if they get that running game going, they're going to control the clock. They're going to keep the USC offense off the field. And so it's not out of the realm of possibility that Oregon State can do that because we saw them do it a season ago. So if they can do that again, you're right. Like, it should be a close game. I think there is very a high variance in this game where USC could win by 30, but they could also lose because Oregon State can control the clock. Yeah, six and a half, I think, is about right. Um, I, you know, I kind of like USC just because I do think this is going to be a close game, but when you have such a high-powered offense like USC – it could be a close game the whole time, and then they could score some last-minute touchdowns. You know, they could score some yeah. touchdowns at the very end of the game. Um, so it's just, it, Stephen's right. This game could easily be a blowout in favor of USC, or it could be close throughout the whole time, and USC can kind of put their foot on the gas at the end. So with that being said, I kind of like USC minus 6.5, but, uh, you know, Oregon State could easily win this game too. I want to compare this a little bit. Like, you know, I was thinking today, forget the spread. What percentage chance does Oregon State have to win this game? Like, if you're just saying, hey, they have a, you know, if two teams are even playing in a neutral field, you'd say it was a 50-50 game. I'll use the Oregon-Georgia game as an example. I think if they play that game 100 times, Georgia wins 100 of those games. So I think Oregon has a 0% chance to beat Georgia if they play a game. Uh, Now that I've seen them, I, I feel like, Oregon State USC is about a 60-40 proposition, and I'll give the 60% to USC. I think they're the higher-ranked team. They've got more five-star talent. They've you know they got the offense, and but Oregon State's playing at home. They're very experienced. They've got some really experienced defensive backs. Uh, you know we haven't. I I'm curious how much of the playbook Jonathan Smith has held back, and you know I I think they had to try to win it. Fresno State, I don't think they were holding back in that game, but I think Boise State and I think Montana State, I don't think they had to show a whole bunch. So I'm wondering, like, you know, what don't we know about Oregon State? Have they have they not tried to do some things that they know they can do because they know it's not conference played? So I'm going to say I, I give Oregon State about a 40% chance of winning this game. Am I, am I nuts here? I think you're right, about right. You know, I'd probably say it's a little less than 40, but – Again, there is a roadmap where Oregon State wins this game, and it wouldn't be surprising. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely a good chance if Oregon State can follow script, they can get this win. Yeah, 30 was the number that immediately popped in my head for a percent chance. And, you know, I think an important factor is here is USC the following week. They've got Arizona State, who I think we can all agree is probably one of the worst teams in the Pac-12, especially after that firing. And then it's Washington State. So it's not like USC's got Utah the following week or Oregon or, you know, one of the juggernauts in this conference. I I think USC's got, got all their marbles for this game. Everybody who's seen USC, like the Stanford people that I talked to before the Stanford game, they came away going, you know, Stanford moved the ball on them, but Stanford made some mistakes. They turned the ball over twice early, and USC took 14 points for that. Um, Rice moved the ball in USC, but what happened in the second half? Like in the second and third quarter, 
USC just boat raced Rice. I, I, they, they leave you in a position because they're so good offensively that you cannot have wasted offensive possessions. You can't kick field goals, you can't turn the ball over, and you can't punt. So if you know, in the, it reminds me a little bit of Chip Kelly's Oregon's team. It's like you, you could not trade them threes for sevens. It was a losing proposition. I feel like Jonathan Smith in this game, like we've criticized him and we've appreciated the gunslinger about Jonathan Smith, kind of feels like this is the game where he needs to go for it on fourth and one from midfield. He needs to go for it on fourth and two from his own 45. Like, you know, I think we might see some of that. I mean, he's been doing that since he's got to Oregon State, right? Like, I don't see why that would change. He's been going for it on fourth down a lot, which has been criticized a little bit because sometimes it hasn't worked out. But I, I think you're right. This is the game where, you know, you, as they'd say in the water boy, you don't want to hold anything back. This is the game. You don't do that, right? Oregon State wants to get this win. They want to be considered a true contender in the Pac-12. This is the game you got to go for it in 14. You got to convert them, right? You got to put the put the uh, put the pressure on Chance Nolan and let him succeed in these situations. I, I kept thinking too when I was talking to him. I didn't want to insult Jonathan Smith when I was talking to him, but it was uh, you know it was not that long ago that they were they were not playing in games like this. And I used to week to week go, which game do I need to be at? Oregon's game or Oregon State's game? And there was this season early on, I think it was Jonathan's first season, maybe his second season, where I only got to see him play like one time and because they just weren't competitive and they weren't playing in big games. I'm looking at their schedule now, and you, you have to account for Oregon State. The Pac-12 has to account for them. They're playing USC. They're 3-0 against 3-0. It's on the, you know, this game's on the Pac-12 network, unfortunately, but that, that's where it's going. But, you know, and then Oregon State's going to spin right out of this. And they're going to go to Utah in a week. Like, that's going to be another big game for Oregon State. And so it, it's almost like there's a victory before there's a victory by this program. And I'm not saying it's a moral victory. I'm just thinking, in general, there is a brand victory that Oregon State should be celebrating before they even kick this game off because they're playing in a meaningful game in the early part of the season that, you know, is it feels kind of big. Like, Oregon's playing Washington State. That's big, too. But... It, I feel like we have a lot to talk about because Oregon State got its stuff together. I think the thing that stings a little bit, and you mentioned it, it's that this game's on the Pac-12 network, and then next week is on the Pac-12 network when they go to Utah. And like, I think the three of us know that Oregon State is a top twenty-five caliber team. But you know, we've been talking about Paul Feinbaum on this show. You think he knows that Oregon State is a top twenty-five caliber no. team? I wish this game was on national TV or at least the Utah game because even for me, it's going to be tough to watch. I don't have access to the Pac-12 network, and Oregon State deserves more of that national attention. Yeah, here's what Feinbaum said, and I think if I'm Oregon State, this kind of pisses me off. I'm if I'm anybody in the Pac-12, this pisses me off. I think it probably comes down to either Clemson or, or Southern Cal right now. And a couple of weeks ago, she shot, I was worried about Southern Cal, but I, I'm not worried about them now. I think they basically have about a two-game season, uh, the most difficult game being at Utah, which, which I, I still think is a formidable team, but, but they're playing with, with such explosive, explosiveness. I, I didn't expect it. I mean, I thought they would be significantly better. Uh, I still, I'll, I'll, I'll defer to you on their defensive side of the ball, but but offensively right now they can hang with almost any team around. So I think uh, I, I think they they have to be considered a serious threat because I don't you know, you, uh, again uh, I see a couple of good teams in the Pac-12. The records are deceiving, but I, I don't see a team that is on their level from a talent standpoint. All right, if I'm Oregon State, you know that's that bothers me. I think Feinbaum is mostly spitting truth there, but. There's a there's an undertone 
that it's you got a two-game season. And he's not talking about Oregon State being one of those games. Here's, you know, and here's the other thing, too. We get fooled. And I think, Stephen, you're a master of this. You've talked about how you like to wager. You, looked at, you look at teams that are undervalued and overvalued. And sometimes you just bet on a game because you know you're getting a value it because somebody's undervalued or overvalued. USC right now is overvalued. Like, and why? Because they beat Rice? Because they beat Stanford? Because they beat Fresno State at home? Uh, with Jake Hayner getting hurt? I think they're overvalued a little bit here. And, and I think the national media is, you know, number seven USC. I'm not sure they're the seventh best team in the country. I think we're going to find out more about them against Oregon State. We're certainly going to find out more about them on October 15th when they go to Salt Lake City and play Utah. But let's talk more about this. And the Ducks going to Washington State. 503-417-7575. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I still haven't made my pick on Oregon State, USC. I haven't made my pick on Oregon, Washington State. We'll do that tomorrow on the show, as we do every Thursday. We'll go through the Pac-12 conference. We'll give our picks. We'll get on record. Uh, I was looking at my picks from last week. Um, It wasn't my greatest performance, week three. Um, I went uh, four and five against the spread. Not happy there. I Straight up, I went six and three. I lost the cow game. I, um, Cal kind of hosed me. I picked them to win that game. They didn't. Uh, Arizona State kind of hosed us all. And uh, even though I picked Washington to win the game, I had Michigan State playing them closer than they did. So I lost that one against the spread. That was a, that was a bad outcome for me, even though I had the right winner. Uh, for the season, I'm 17 and 15 against the spread. I'm 25 and 7 straight up. So I'm keeping this job. I'm not going to Vegas just yet. Let's go to the phone lines. 503-417-7575 is the number. You want to talk about the Ducks? You want to talk about the Beavers? You want to talk about the Pac-12? Now's the time. You want to talk about fanny packs and pickpocketing? We're game. Let it rip. Here's Dylan and Eugene. Dylan, what's up, man? Hey, so I don't know if they schedule the Pac-12 schedule years in advance or if they do it year by year. Do you know? Yeah, they do it. They do it. There's a rotating schedule that happens. It does happen years in advance, but... Uh, I know where you're going with this. Not a great draw for Oregon State or Washington State this year. Yeah, it feels like a little bit of a conspiracy. You know, Oregon State's right on that cut last year, five and seven, and I'm a Duck fan, and it's just it's, it feels terrible for them to have to play SC and turn around and play Utah. So I wish them the best, though, nonetheless. Yeah, yeah, and it, look, and and when they make these schedules, they uh, obviously don't know. Um, they don't know who's going to be good. I mean, and the schedules come out before. But George Klyovkov, the Pac-12 commissioner, now says that what they're going to do is game the schedule a little bit. They're going to make it easier for the teams that are contenders to not have to play each other and cross over. Uh, Washington got the best draw this year. And, you know, it's why in the preseason, before they even started a game, I was talking about Washington, uh, you know, having a having a shot to – matter uh, mostly based on their schedule so you know when you look at washington's schedule 
this season. I'm just going to lay this out. They don't have to play Utah, and they don't have to play USC in the regular season. Huge advantage. Like, think about just the Pacific Northwest. They don't play Utah. They don't play USC. Oregon State and Washington State have to play them both. That is a two-game disadvantage for Oregon State and Washington State against Washington head-to-head. Oregon only has to play Utah, does not have to play USC. Uh, Conversely, um, Oregon State skips UCLA and Arizona in the regular season. UCLA might end up being okay, but when you skip Arizona, that hurts. And Washington State has it worse. They skip Colorado. So that's tough. And Washington State has to play Oregon State at Oregon State. So I think Washington's got the easiest schedule in the conference. I think Oregon's right behind them. And then when you talk about the Pacific Northwest teams, Oregon State and Washington State by far have a tougher schedule than Washington and Oregon. Yeah, John, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, there was updated win totals, and Colorado was at a half a game. Will they win a Pac-12 game? (laughs) I don't think they will. I don't either. (laughs) Right now, I I don't think Carl Durrell is going to get fired this week. He's going to get fired at some point. And probably some of it isn't his fault because Mel Tucker left. He took over. There was a pandemic. Like, you know, it, it wasn't ideal for Carl Durrell. But uh, Colorado, if they fire him now, they owe him about $10 million. They're not going to do that. If they wait till the end of the season, right around January 1, it drops to $7 million. If they wait another year, it drops to $4 million. I think $7 million is the price. So I think he gets to finish the year, but that's it. And I think they'll make a change. And I think Colorado could, like Colorado, if you look at their resources, if you look at who they are, Colorado is essentially Washington. Like, they, they should be a factor in most years. But right now, they don't have a quarterback. And they're not very good. They, they don't look like a Pac-12 team physically. Like, their physicality is just not there. Well, I mean, think about when Oregon made the Fiesta Bowl, what was that, 2001? You know, they yeah. It was against Colorado. Like, that was the team that beat Nebraska to go into that game. And everyone was saying, you know, Colorado is the hottest team in the nation. And then just a few years ago, you know, they were in the Pac-12 title game, kind of came out of nowhere under Mike McIntyre. So, yeah, I mean, they got the resources there. It's a great atmosphere. So, you know, you got to get the right coach in there, and I think they can turn it around. I think they were banking on Mel Tucker. And when he left, it pulled the rug up from under him. And I I do think uh, programs that had coaching changes during the pandemic – you were at such a disadvantage because what happens is, you know, you lose players, you lose contact. Recruiting is hard when you're doing it via Zoom, unless you were Arizona State and you were cheating. Um, you know, it was it was difficult to recruit. And so I think Carl Durrell, he came in late. He came in after Mel Tucker left. Mel Tucker, you know, that whole staff took off. And, you know, he had a bunch of players that defected and left the program. And, and I think it really – it just wasn't ideal for Carl Durrell. I mean, he's compensated well. He's going to walk away with 10 or $12 million in earnings. And But I think Colorado's got to, you know, at some point, has to make a change. Well, real quick, speaking of Arizona State, what job is more attractive? Because you talked about Arizona State being the sleeping giant. Is it Arizona State or Colorado? Yeah, I think Colorado's a better job. I think, I think Colorado, the expectations in Colorado are more manageable. The fan base is better. I think, um, I think the, the, the resources in the that you're going to get from your athletic director probably easier to deal with. I think Rick George is a good person to work for. I think Colorado is Washington if it's lined up right. 
Arizona State, we, we have said this sleeping giant thing forever. We've been talking about them as a sleeping giant for too long. It's may, they're just asleep. Like, you know, they're, they're, they're maybe, it, it may be a fallacy. But you look at Arizona State and you go, okay, they have geography, they have great weather. Um, you, you see that Bruce Schneider took them to a Rose Bowl, and then you look at Dennis Erickson won 10 games, and you look at Todd Graham, he won 10 games twice, and you go, okay, it can be done. But I started counting up the 10-win seasons at Arizona State in the last 30 years. There's more four-win seasons than 10-win seasons. And so you kind of look at that and you go, at some level, maybe it's a fallacy that they're a sleeping giant. More of your phone calls. You got the bald-faced truth. The phone number is 503-417-7575. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. a fun show what have we talked about we've talked about pickpockets we've talked about fanny packs we've been talking about college football games the playoff we've had great guests today ryan divish in hour one uh he covers the mariners for the seattle times he was great mariners in a pennant race uh you've got uh or at least trying to get to the playoffs you got uh the jonathan smith the oregon state coach who joined us uh just uh, at five o'clock today if you missed that interview You'll want to uh, grab it on a podcast. He was really good. He joins us every Wednesday. On tomorrow's show, we got Jaden Grant, Oregon State defensive back. King Jamba, as he's known on the football field. Uh, we've got also Bo Nix, the Oregon quarterback, coming on tomorrow. Talk Timbers is coming up in Portland, top of the hour. So if you want to uh, know what's going on with the MLS team in Portland, you can stick around here. And uh, you can do that as well. So, uh, fun show today. I, I had more comments about the fanny pack talk than anything else. Have we decided? Is it like it's okay if your wife wears a fanny pack, Stephen? I'm good with that. Not that she cares. I'm yeah. good with it. I'll, I'll tell her, though. I'll tell her and she'll, she'll care. Um, yeah, I mean, I th- it's for me, it's better because then I don't have to hold her stuff like in my pockets or something because she doesn't wear a lot of pockets, you know, and she doesn't want to have like a bag or a purse. So I'm down with it. Um, I just think it's kind of a silly look in general, and I can okay. I, maybe maybe it's because I couldn't pull it off, John. And maybe that's right. what it is. You know, maybe let me I'm ask a, you: I'm Is it old... okay if you had a guy friend who showed up with a fanny pack? Do you mention it? Do you say something? I mean, if it looks good, like if some people can pull it off. I mean, me as a middle-aged bald white guy, I probably don't think I can pull it off. I I would not wear a fanny pack. I don't either. I think Sean could. Like if Sean had a nice-looking fanny pack, he could pull it off. Does Sean, have a fanny pack on right now. No, I don't have one on right now. Do you have, own one? I I own one. It's more for like I think it's for like running. Um, it's definitely not like what you're picturing. It's a little like it's a little thing that goes around your waist, and it's got like a little. It's kind of like a belt, and uh, yeah, it's meant for like hiking or running. So I definitely I haven't worn it in a long time, long time. <laughs> I like how you have to kind of apologize what you're saying. You haven't worn it. What color is the fanny pack? Black. Okay. You know, the last time I wore it was for my first marathon, um, and I just stacked, I put a bunch of stuff in there, and I wore it as a belt, and, you know, it was important, because I had water in there, I had um, protein bars in there, just things like that. 
Did a lot of runners wear fanny packs when they're in the I marathons? think a lot of marathon runners do because, again, it's so important to, like, be eating food. And, you know, you can also stash things like your headphones in there. And, uh, yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's more like road runners, like long distance. You know, it's interesting. Is I, I did a story one time. I wrote a column about a guy who was an ultra marathoner who ran these races that were, like, 100 miles plus. Could okay? never be me. Yeah. Um, I think you have to have a little different kind of personality, very addictive personalities drawn to the ultra marathoning scene. And you get a lot of people who have had issues and are, have been in recovery who have turned their addiction from alcohol or drugs into running. Like you, Those stories are out there. I, I find it very interesting that it seems that that's the thing. But I was talking to this ultra marathoner one time, and I asked him, I said, you know, Give me an idea when you're out there. Like, it's got to hurt. Because I, I, it hurts me to run, like, six miles. You know, I can't imagine getting to 30 miles, 50 miles, 75 miles. Like, what does that feel like? And he said, you know, you know, it is what it is. But And then I had so many follow-up questions. I was like, what do you, like, how do you go to the bathroom? And he said that, you know, sometimes you just go. And I was like, what do you mean? You're just running and you just go? Like, is that is that what happens, Sean? Like you're in a marathon, you have to go to the bathroom. What happens? Uh, so I ran one in May, and I had to go really bad, and I really was mad that I had to go because like I was racing against the clock, and I literally went so quickly, like probably the quickest I've ever gone, and I, I think I lost like a minute. But I but, I but went. You, pulled, I you went off the course and went into there like a, a, there was porta potties potty. everywhere. There was okay. porta potties everywhere. The ultra marathoners just go. Like, yeah, that's if, gross. If you have to urinate, you go. You urinate. Well, okay, urinating's one thing. If you're yeah. truly committed, you would have just gone. Well. <laughs> not committed. Questioning his commitment. He's got a fanny pack on. You know, you're not serious about running a marathon? I could. I could. I was shot. I couldn't do it, man. I'd have to pull off. I just. Well, I've talked to college football players who say they go on the field. They go in front. You know, Kellen Clemens told me that. Former Oregon quarterback. He said. We're talking just urinating, right? Yeah, urinated. He urinated right in the middle yeah, of Watson Stadium. Fine. He said the whole crowd was there. It was a timeout. He just looked around. And he said, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna pee." I was at and a concert went. a couple weeks ago, and I really had to pee in the middle of the concert, but I didn't want to miss a second of the concert. And I thought about it. I thought about just going. <laughs> and then a song that I didn't like as oh. much came on, and I, I sprinted. I sprinted through the Moda Center to go to the bathroom. Thank goodness. Like, what if the next song was about water? Rivers, waterfall, TLC. <laughs> yeah, TLC's playing waterfall, and Sean's hopping around, going, "I'm not hearing this. I'm not hearing this." In the middle of the concert. See, there's another reason why Stephen looks smart. Stephen doesn't go to concerts. Thank you. Therefore, Stephen doesn't have that issue of I, being in, losing his position. I've never had to pee my pants at the concert. I'm good. <laughs> hey, he doesn't have go. a story to tell on the uh, the show, though. Like All I right. just did. We got a great show tomorrow. We got big guests, Jaden Grant. Uh, Oregon State, Bo Nix, Oregon will be on the program. I hope you're here for it. Grab the podcast. Give us a rating. Give us some feedback. Uh, you know, we uh, we, tr- we try to put on the best radio show we can. We're not always perfect, but we're always trying to get it right, and I think that's important. The Bald Face Truth is not here for a long time, just a good time. Appreciate everybody who makes this show part of their day.